This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month we're highlighting The Power of Teams, How to Create and Lead Thriving School Teams by Samuel Crome. The Power of Teams explores evidence from across sectors, including education, to find out what high-performing teams share and how we can adapt the most effective teamwork strategies to the unique environment of a school. The book outlines a model of teamwork factors that contribute to truly thriving teams, with theory, research, tangible actions for school teams, and a range of expert voices who contribute their experience in case studies. Effective teamwork leads to purpose, belonging, trust, learning, and, ultimately, high performance. When we better understand the nuances of how teams can thrive, we discover the real power of teams. You can get The Power of Teams now via the John Cat website. That's where you can also find my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, and Tools for Teachers. Again, that's the John Cat website, or on Woods Lane in Australia, or via Amazon or any other online book retailer. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that is working directly in schools and with leaders across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode we're speaking with Sarah Cottingham. Sarah is a former teacher and experienced teacher educator. She has an MA in Educational Neuroscience and translates research on memory and learning into potential practical implications for teachers. She also works with schools and organisations on how to train staff most effectively. Sarah is the author of Algebill's Meaningful Learning in Action, which accessibly explains Algebill's powerful learning theory and how to harness its benefits to support learning. And this is the topic of today's conversation. I think that this will be one of the more impactful episodes of the ERRR podcast for many listeners, because it really gets to the heart of our day-to-day task by asking the fundamental question, what is learning and how does it happen? Sarah has done a phenomenal amount of work deconstructing the dense prose and complex terminology of David Algebel and making it accessible to mere mortals like us. There is an absolute shed load of wisdom packed into this episode, and I'm very, very confident that you're going to love listening to it as much as I loved this conversation with Sarah. 
And if you're keen for a weekly dose of educational insight, stimulation and resources, you might like my EdThreads newsletter. Each week I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in an easy to digest email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump into this episode of the ERRR podcast. Sarah Cottingham, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you very much for having me on. I've been a big fan of this podcast for a long time. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure to have you here, have you here, Sarah, and I've been a big fan of your work for a long time as well, so I'm really looking forward to, to our chat today. Today, we're talking about uh, your fantastic new book, Sarah, about Alzubel's. Is, is that how you pronounce it, Alzubel? I'm not actually 100% sure. <laughs> I um I I hear different pronunciations of it. Uh, as you bell, as you bell, lots of different pronunciations. I'm not 100% All right, well, I'm, sure. I'm going to copy Dylan William and he says as you bell son. That's what I'm going with today. Um yeah. about as you bell's theory of meaningful learning. Why do we need as you bell's theory of learning, Sarah? Um so um I'll give a slightly convoluted answer to this and then try to sort of summarize it. But I came to this theory, which is called assimilation theory, and it's all about meaningful learning. I came to Algebra's theory um, at a time where I'd studied, looked at a lot of cognitive science and looked at a lot of kind of neuroscience and the experiments that they do in uh, cognitive psychology and neuroscience are very much about um, recall of like distinct facts and ideas. So if you think about an experiment that they might set up, they might have two groups, um, one group of students who uh, do some retrieval practice, another group of students who just reread stuff. And then they do a test at the end where they have to recall some facts from a particular passage. Sometimes they just get them to kind of study nonsense word pairs, like orange and forest put together and you've got to like recall the other word pair and and that's kind of used to generate um findings about memory and that's useful and it tells us a lot of stuff but when we think about the classroom and what teachers do we very rarely ask students to recall um the second part of a nonsense word pair or distinct facts from a passage um, so whereas those experiments are useful for telling us some stuff about memory, they can't kind of tell us, um, everything we, we need to know. And, um, Algebra's theory is, is about, um, is about meaningful learning and about forming bodies of knowledge. Um, and bodies of knowledge are what allow our students, um, to kind of think in a really complex way about our subjects um so i'm an english specialist i know you obviously ollie your your maths um so they uh, allow students to kind of solve problems they allow students to um write these fantastic essays that show a lot of depth understanding so algebra is essentially focusing on a different end goal to these uh, kind of cognitive science experiments it's not just the recall of distinct ideas but the building of these rich, complex bodies of knowledge. So that's why I think this theory is really important um, for teachers. Thanks, Sarah. So we need the theory because it relates to or it refers to like learning 
in the way that it's actually usually carried out in the classroom and in within um, regular domains of knowledge rather than these kind of pigeonholed um, or restricted or kind of what's the best simplified versions of learning that are often studied within um, cognitive psychology and, and and the learning sciences does that mean that does that mean that lots of those learnings about retrieval and so on uh, in the eyes of Bell are, are not as important? Yeah, I think so. He's he's quite clear that um, he thinks that um, we can only, it's limited what we can tell from those kinds of experiments about memory um, for teachers, um, for educators generally, I suppose. Um and he, yeah, he's he's quite clear that like whilst it's useful, it's not it's not it's not a theory of it's it's not those insights are not telling us how to get necessarily telling us how to get towards the end goal that we actually want as teachers, which he says are these rich complex bodies of knowledge. So useful, but but limited in their use. So perhaps useful in terms of just reinforcing the bodies of knowledge that you've built something like that. For if we look at retrieval? Yeah, potentially for retrieval. He doesn't really talk much about retrieval. He does talk about consolidation, so when memory gets consolidated, i.e. like stored for the long term. But he doesn't actually talk, talk much about um, the value of um, retrieval. Um, and we know retrieval supports consolidation of memory, but that was sort of a later insight. He was writing more in like the 1960s and he, he died in like the early 2000s. So I think... Um, a lot of kind of newer stuff has had not kind of come out yet about that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's just kind of that, that sort of stuff he said, it has a place, but it's not, it's not a theory of how to get to the learning that we actually want. I think is what he's trying to say. Got it. So you've talked about these kind of rich bodies of knowledge. Can you uh, color that for us a little bit, Sarah? What do you mean? And what does Elsie Bell mean? Um, in your interpretation when he talks about rich bodies of knowledge. And do you have some examples? Yeah. So, um, so this is this is, is what I particularly, this is a bit of a major insight for me um, when when reading uh, Azubel's uh, books, um, is this idea that knowledge, uh, and this is obviously metaphorical, this isn't like exactly how it's stored in, in, in your brain, but sort of metaphorically speaking, knowledge is stored in these kind of hierarchical bodies of knowledge. And within a body of knowledge, would, you would have um, certain concepts and certain propositions um, that kind of make up these bodies of knowledge. So when you first kind of start studying something, um, you're you're starting to build your understanding of certain ideas, and then as you you know continue to study, hopefully you will add more concepts, add more links to different concepts, um, and you'll start to see the relationship between ideas. And you can almost see it as like a, a sort of spider web of of a kind of um, concepts and connections that kind of come out of that. So an example, I am um, trying to think of an example um, in English. You, uh, you, we study over here a lot of Shakespeare 
And um, as you start studying Shakespeare, that might start in primary school um, and you might start by watching uh, a play and you've got this kind of naive conception um, of Shakespeare as, you know, um, being about comedies and you watched it, you know, you watched a play that was about comedy and it was funny uh, and it was silly and it was colourful. And then but some of the language was a bit obscure to you. And then as you kind of grow your understanding of Shakespeare, you start to understand the context of when he was writing. You start to um, understand that actually he wrote tragedies as well um, and that they kind of have um, a certain amount of acts to them and they tend to follow a certain structure. And then you, you're sort of building this more, more and more complex um, body of knowledge around Shakespeare. Um, and, and those connections in particular, the connections between concepts and propositions are what sort of help to build and support um, that body of knowledge and make it nice and stable so you can take it forward and remember it in later years. Cool. Two key words you used there were concepts and propositions. What do each of those words mean? So to Azubel, um, and the idea of concepts is not something that just Azubel writes about. Every, lots of people have written about concepts and people have different ideas of what a concept is. But to Azubel, it's this, uh, it's like things that kind of have similarities between them. So the concept of furniture, for example, if you think about like within that, you've got like chairs, tables, etc., footstools, whatever you've got. And they're all kind of there and you might your concept of furniture might be to like support other things like uh you or uh your you know um your cutlery and all that whatever it is and they've got this kind of similarity between them that allows them to be part of a particular group so a concept uh, is is kind of um stuff that essentially um links together by having those kind of similarities to them and then a proposition is a sentence I think you can think of it as like a sentence or an idea that contains multiple concepts linked together so you might have the sentence um I bought the table from the shop down the road and you've got different concepts in there you've got um, table as a concept shop as a concept etc and you've got um those linking words that link them together so for Azubel concepts are these um, these kind of things that have um, similarities between them, like furniture is a good example, or pets could be another example. And then you've got um, propositions, and they are your like ideas or sentences that contain multiple concepts with linking words. And the important thing to remember about propositions is that they're more than the sum of their parts. So you can you can understand what a shop is um, and what furniture is, but then the proposition as a whole you might not fully comprehend. Um, and that's probably not a good example. So we could take like um, the definition of like osmosis, for example. I think that's something I put in the book, which is like the movement. I'm going to get this wrong because I'm, <laughs> I'm not a science teacher. But it's like the movement of molecules from a high concentration to a low concentration through a semi-permeable membrane. So you could understand what high concentration is as a concept, what low concentration is, what a semi-permeable membrane is, and you could still not fully appreciate what osmosis is and that it happens through potato skins and things like that. So to really understand a proposition is more than just the sum of its kind of concepts and linking words. Mm. Fascinating. I'm going to come back to that because I think that's a really interesting point, the, the, the kind of gestalt of, uh, of, of, mm -hmm. of concepts within propos propositions. 
However, something I'm keen for us to dive into a little bit more now is like how those concepts are or how the understanding of those concepts are built over time because I found mm. it really interesting in your book and this is something I've been thinking about more broadly, especially because um, my daughter Ada is now here and I'm like watching her learn things and, and you've got your little Harry as well, Sarah, which is super exciting. Um, you talk about in the book how initially concepts are learned concretely but later on they can be learned through assimilation. Can you talk to us a little bit about that process? Okay, so again, this is um, part of Azubel's understanding of, of concepts and not something that isn't kind of debated. So um, this is his conception. Um, he says that when we are very young, so um, our little one's age, um, and kind of up into, I suppose, like in this country, we call about the early years, so probably up until kind of early primary school years um he talks about how we need to learn things through concrete experience with it so if we think about um little ones we think about how they um they have, need to see things and to and, and and to understand what they are they need to see a dog and multiple dogs and under, to understand that all of these things are categorized as a dog and then it becomes an abstract concept where we can think about this concept of dog because we know that that's it represents these kind of like multiple concrete things. So he says at first, little little people need to experience things concretely. But when we actually have the abstract concept in mind of what a dog is, um, of what you know furniture is, of what um, of even even kind of more abstract things than that, of what we mean by love, what we mean by patriotism, kind of ideas like that concepts like that when we've gained an understanding of them then we can use them without concrete experience to learn new things so we can think about what a dog what dogs are and we can think about how we feel about dogs etc we can think about um love and what it means to love love someone and a book that we've read that's you know about love etc and we don't have to have a kind of concrete um, thing in front of us to really understand uh, a tangible thing to really understand what it is. So we formed the abstract concepts by a certain age, and we can use them to think with. And then, as Yubel says, his theory kind of kicks in. His assimilation theory kicks in. But before that age, we need that kind of concrete, more concrete experience. Yeah, love that. And I, I really like how it reinforces this idea that kind of knowledge sticks to knowledge and knowledge compounds. So the more concepts you already have stored in long-term memory, the faster you can learn new concepts because new new concepts are combinations or can be interpreted as combinations of prior concepts, uh, which is really great. I, I was just trying to think as you're talking there of some examples of a, a young person kind of moving from concrete things that they can see to like more of an abstract idea or concept. And the thing I came up with is, um, you know, originally kids can learn like what a man is, for example. Um, well, let's, just, let's pretend we're living in a binary world. So let's just say what a man is, um, what a white beard is and what presents are. And based upon those three th concepts, they can understand. I'm sure you can guess where I'm going here, Sarah. You know, mm -hmm. Santa Claus, a concept <laughs> of something that they've probably not seen before, is a man with a white beard who brings you presents. So they don't actually have to see Santa Claus, although they might see him down at the, the shopping center as well. So I think I, I just think this is like a really interesting and powerful idea. Kieran Egan talks about 
um, the idea of somatic understanding, which is like mm-hmm. understanding that comes through the senses. And he builds up a really nice argument about how young people, they understand fundamentally through their senses because mm-hmm. that's all I've got. They haven't actually got the kind of concepts um, in their long-term memory yet. So, they've just built up their senses and they accumulate those experiences and then they base every understanding, every subsequent understanding from that, which is like really it just kind of blows my mind because I, like a baby literally knows nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, how do you build start to build schema in their long-term memory. Well, it's like this is hot, this is cold, this is like comfortable, this is uncomfortable, this is wet, this is dry. And those sense, those senses um, build up over time into into more and more complex concepts till, you know, the point that we can have conversations like the one we're having today, mm, which is, mm-hmm. yeah, amazing. So, you've, you've, you've alluded a little bit to this idea of assimilation already today, Sarah. Do you want to tell us uh, what assimilation is? Yeah, so um, assimilation is, is sort of the the, the bedrock of, of what Azubel's talking about, and that's why it's called assimilation theory. But essentially, um, he is saying that when we learn things meaningfully, and we'll kind of get to that, um, what we what we do is we assimilate, and I'll, I'll use a different word so we can explain it. Uh, integrate would be an, uh, kind of the closest that I found are relevant kind of existing knowledge so stuff we already have in mind and already know with the new idea that's being taught to us so um, as we're sitting uh, standing in front of 30 students and we're talking to them about Pythagoras's theorem or the water cycle or Romeo and Juliet or whatever it is that we're talking to them about we're, we're conveying kind of new ideas usually to them and um they are using their existing knowledge to try to understand what we are saying. So they're always trying to use their existing knowledge. So, um, but there's kind of better and worse existing knowledge to use, right? They could use existing knowledge that's not very good. Um, and they could come to a misunderstanding of what you're saying, or they could use existing knowledge that's kind of got lots of gaps in it. So they don't really understand what you're, what you're trying to say. But the idea is that everyone's trying to use their existing knowledge to understand what the teacher's saying. And if they kind of manage to do it, um, more or less successfully, then they assimilate the existing knowledge with the new idea and I kind of like I think about it in my head as like a Venn diagram and you imagine one circle is um your existing knowledge and the other circle is the new idea and they start to connect integrate and overlap and and that's assimilation Mm, so it's the connecting of new new knowledge to something that students already know and I think this is this is a really fundamental insight. And I'm not sure if Elzebel is the first one to kind of talk about this. Perhaps he is, but I mean, I'd definitely come across this idea before I'd come across his name. But it's it's fundamentally like what he's learning. Learning is when new knowledge sticks to old knowledge. And if 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 you expose some idea to someone and they're not able to stick the new knowledge to their existing knowledge, that idea floats away. Um, that's the, for me, that's the key takeaway. A, a phrase that I like to use um, in this kind of realm is the idea of like a memory anchor. I, I'm sure you've, I'm, I'm not sure, but you've, you've likely come across this. But the idea is um, what's an anchor? It stops a boat from floating away. What's a memory anchor? It f- stops a new idea from floating away. So, if, so, uh, 
Another good example is if we're trying to teach someone a word, like, I don't know, let's think of a Mandarin word for friend, like pengyo. Like, I've just said that. But if, if you don't have any kind of prior knowledge about Mandarin or like those really unfamiliar sounds, if I test someone like 30 seconds later, that memory's just gone. And that's because there's nothing they can, they can kind of relate it to. Um, so I, I think this is like such a fundamental insight for teachers to understand. It's like, what is learning? It's connecting new ideas to old ideas. Did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, you're totally right to draw it out. It's the thing that Azubel is kind of most well known for is this idea that the most important variable in the learning process is what the student already knows. So what they know is fundamental to to what and how they learn. And, And, you know, you said there that learning is when we connect prior knowledge to a new idea. And I, th- I think I'd just change that slightly to say that um, the learning we, that's the learning we want. There's lots of different types of learning, better and worse for us as teachers. But the learning that we want is, like you say, that anchored learning when you anchor the new idea to existing knowledge. Um, and there's yeah, so much more we can say about that. Super interesting. Now, this I find this really interesting. So, I feel that it's I, – I might be wrong here. Maybe there's like fully rote learning. But I feel like it's not possible to keep something in your head unless it is linked to at least something. Um, what Would you agree or disagree? I, I think I agree with that. And I think Azubel agrees with that as well because um, even though he talks about rote learning, I talk in the book about rote like learning because I see it as a and he sees it as a continuum um so you you imagine a continuum with rote learning down one end and meaningful learning down the other end um can anything be fully rote learned so you think when you try and rote learn something you're trying to brand it onto your brain what you're essentially saying is like I don't have any kind of prior knowledge that I can bring to understand this thing so I'm just going to repeat it again and again and again and again and hope that it sticks in my mind so that could be seen as fully rote learning but even that i would say isn't completely rote because you're using you when you try to recall it you're going to try and to recall the context in which you repeated it you're going to try and recall the person who said it to you so you're always going to try to hang it onto something else so and i think mm. ajibo agrees we're always trying to bring some kind of prior knowledge to understand a new idea and we know this because as humans we don't just walk around the world passively experiencing things do we We don't step out of our house and just kind of wander around going oh there's a blue thing is that what is that is that the sky yeah we don't we we don't do that we we go about our business we kind of we use our prior knowledge all of the time to make sense of things that's my car that's the that's the sky oh i can smell something oh that smells like a barbecue we're using our our prior knowledge all of the time and that's because we're human and that's how we operate rightly so um so nothing is ever completely rote learnt i don't think um but if we see it as a continuum i think that's really helpful so things can be more or less meaningfully learnt and meaningful learning is when we have that assimilation where we connect the old to the new so if we make a very very partial connection um like um 
your the word for friend in Mandarin was um can't remember it. Pyun Pyongyol? No. Yeah, was not that bad. right? Not bad. Pyongyol, <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Pyongyol. Pyongyol. That's great. I've learned something. Or have I? Um and I can I can I could sort of just repeat that over and over again and think about you when I'm trying to remember it and how I'm trying to try to piece that together. And that me that's quite a rote way of learning it. Or I could think like, um, ha- what do the sounds remind me of? Can I connect it to the name of a friend I've got? Can I connect it to a word that reminds me of friend? In which case I'm trying to learn it in a slightly more meaningful way. Um, or perhaps I could learn a sentence in Mandarin um, and I could say it lots of times to different friends. And then then it might become even more meaningful to me. Um, and I could maybe learn the word for enemy in uh, Mandarin and I could have that contrast between I know the word for friend and the word for enemy and then it starts to become more meaningful to me so it can move along that meaningful continuum with the more connections that I'm able to make yeah 100% and that that's exactly how I think about understanding as well like I think a key phrase you used earlier was understanding isn't like well I'm not sure if you use these exact words but you're getting at understanding isn't like a binary it isn't like on or off like I understand it or I don't understand it what you did say is understanding is a continuum and the way I picture it is like a new idea that you're introducing into your or attempting to introduce into your long-term memory. If you're able to connect that to one prior bit of knowledge, that's like a shallow understanding. If you're able to connect it to two strands, that's deeper understanding and the more and more like threads of meaning that you can connect to prior knowledge, the more and more securely it's anchored to come back to that metaphor in your memory and the less likely it is to float away. Um, and so, I mean, an example of that, if we, I know you're an English expert, so if we talk about like Romeo and Juliet and I think of the character of Romeo, I'm going to give an example of my the level of my understanding, the depth of my understanding, okay? He is, like, I don't even know if he's a Montague or a Capulet. He's one of them. I'm going to guess Montague, but I don't know mm-hmm. if that's right. Um, yep. He's kind of in love with Juliet. Um, he, he, pretends to poison himself or something something i can't i can't remember anymore oh i i recently um watched the a musical and juliet which was mm-hmm. amazing so like i have connections between the character of romeo and um like that particular stage play which isn't actually that relevant um <laughs> you know he says stuff from a balcony i could probably like um, whip out some quotes like a rose by any other other name would spell sweet. I don't know. That sounds like some Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> he's he's in a play called Romeo and Juliet, written by Shakespeare. So like that's my knowledge. So there's there's a bunch of connections, but I don't know. I, I probably made like eight connections there. So like that's that's some understanding, right? But they weren't super rich in terms of like what the things that I connected it to, like a balcony, like that is connected to. My prior knowledge, I know what a balcony is, but that's not as relevant to the rest of the story as potentially some conceptual things. So, but I know who Romeo is more than a person who could say, oh, Romeo, uh, he's some guy in a play called Romeo and Juliet, which is by Shakespeare, which is like two strands of understanding, right? Um, Would you like to demonstrate your understanding of uh, (laughs) Romeo as a bit of a contrast to show what I expect would be a much deeper understanding? Yeah, well, let's see. But I just just to just to reflect back on what you were saying though there, um, Ollie, um, you're right. Like if you think about the continuum, someone who is like, oh Romeo, I think he's some dude in some play 
um, famous play to your understanding, which is like, okay, I think he's definitely a dude in some play. I think he's part of a family called Montagues who, and there's also a family called Capulets. I'm not hundred percent, hundred percent sure which one he's in, but I think it's Montagues. Um, there's something about a balcony going on. There's some language there that you've got. What you've kind of got is you've sort of got links to what I would say are kind of like little islands of knowledge about Romeo. They're not really cohesive yet. They're not being drawn together. You're just kind of, if if we were to map it out, it'd be Romeo in the middle and then lots of strands to different islands of knowledge. Um, So then if I think about that, I've taught Romeo and Juliet. um, So, um, and then, you know, you asked me about Romeo. I might, might say something like, well, the thing I really wonder about Romeo is that he was really in love with this woman called Rosalind at the beginning and he was head over heels with her. And then all of a sudden he falls in love with Juliet. So, I mean, how strong really is this love? You know, so it it always puts me on the back foot a bit when I'm, when I'm, when I'm, uh, you know, watching that play being staged, I always think how much, how flaky is Romeo really? And actually the characters are really young. So this is kind of like a teenage romance. So whereas it seems like this big, powerful love story, is it really just a sort of teenage fling that ends, ends kind of really tragically? Um, and, you know, and then I, you know, you might say, well, you know, Romeo's part of this, of this um, family, the Montagues and the Capulets. And what's Shakespeare trying to say about, you know, feuds and those feuding families and, you know, status and all this kind of stuff. And we can start to draw, draw that in as well. And actually, you know, this is just a, you know, Romeo and Juliet is the main plot, but there are all these kind of subplots to the play, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we could go off on like loads of tangents there. So I think because I've studied it and because I've taught it, I have a richer kind of body, more of a body of knowledge that I can draw upon to create more of a sort of the explanation that I'm creating is is uh, fuller, richer. Um, I'm able to pose more interesting questions, aren't I? Because I've got more knowledge. And that's what we want from our students, isn't it? We want that rich body of knowledge where they can go, hang on a second. This is what people think, but I think this because of this. And they can sort of start to have that um, almost like debate with themselves, which is a bit more interesting. And that comes through, we're talking about the depth of understanding through that, that meaningful learning and assimilation. Yeah, and this links back so well to the prior episode of the, the, the podcast with Sam Gibbs because she was talking about a concept-led curriculum. So, you see, the thing I was talking about, the, the, the ideas I was linking Romeo to was, as you mentioned, those islands like balconies and stuff, not not big themes in life or English or, or school or anything like that, but you were linking it to things like feuds, family, the status, um, the idea of love, the idea of teenage hormones, these like larger concepts of which Romeo is like an instantiation or an example uh, within the play. Um, and then you were linking back to the idea of like Shakespeare and the intent of the writer and things like that. So, I think I think this has actually been a really illustrative example of like what a, a meaningful body of knowledge around the character of Romeo is versus what a like less meaningful or or more shallow understanding of what Romeo is. Good. Okay. I'm glad I glad I passed the test on that one. <laughs> I no, agree no, with you with, was, with uh, Sam Gibbs. And if people, if listeners haven't listened to that episode yet, they should definitely um, listen to that. She talks about, like you say, that that concept led curriculum. But she's talking about what what I just thought was brilliant was that in Sam's book, um, 
she, and in the podcast, she's talking about concepts that are particularly sort of particular to, to English as well. And I think that's where um, Algebra isn't really doing that. He's not talking about his theory in relation to specific subjects and disciplines. And what Sam has done is she's, she's thought about what concepts are particular to English, as well as she's talking about those kind of substantive concepts that aren't particular to English, like power, etc. But she's also talking about um, ways to see, ways to basically disciplinary concepts that are used to sort of view um, the writer's craft, for example. And um, I think the one you talk about a lot is um, texts as constructs and things like that. And it made me think about like, are those concepts in the same way as the um substantive concepts or are they different are they do they sit on top of the hierarchy are they beside the you know it sort of made me want to map it all out which i haven't haven't done yet um is it always a hierarchy this is a really good question so um Azubel assumes a hierarchy, I think, um, of knowledge in in the brain. And what I thought was really interesting in Daniel Willingham's latest book, he says that as he says that educators tend to have um, a sense of hierarchy as they are teaching, and often students don't know what that hierarchy is, and we're not explicit enough about what that hierarchy is. So if you think about, um, I think we could stick with Romeo and Juliet for a second. Um, if we think about like um, the, uh, the teacher teaching Romeo and Juliet, they might have in their mind, like, as we read this play, kids are going to really understand that there's this, like, uh, there's this um, higher concept of um, devotion or this higher concept of um, patriarchy or whatever it is. And kids can read that play or watch the play and never pick up that that's what, what that is the higher concept that kind of sits above all the other details in the play that happen. Um, and Algebel's trying to say like their knowledge is best structured in this hierarchy and best kind of like taught in that hierarchy as well. But I mean, there are different ideas about that. That's that's Algebel's idea, and there is evidence, some evidence for that, but it's not kind of fully settled. And you can't like look into the brain and see the hierarchy, can you? It's it's, it's a it's a metaphor, it's a construct, not a sort of brain imaging thing where you can see a hierarchy of neurons or anything like that. But his his idea is that we've got this hierarchy, and knowledge is kind of like nested within um, within a kind of like larger concepts. Why is it helpful to think of it as a hierarchy? Um, so I think it's I think it's helpful because I think we have as teachers we have to put our stake in the ground somewhere. We have to have a structure of knowledge. We have to because we create curricula, don't we? So we have to have some sense of how knowledge is ordered and structured. Um, a hierarchy is beneficial because you end up linking constantly back to recurring concepts. So um, if you were talking about, um, if we're talking about English, we could talk about the idea of power 
and like power comes in in different texts and we're, uh, we're linking to it in one text and then we study another text and we link to it and we can compare the texts. Usually poems are kind of done like that in, in English. Um, we might have, um, a kind of love and relationships poems and those ideas of love and relationships are coming through all of the different poems that the, the um, students are reading but in different ways so it might be a relationship in terms of friendship in terms of love in terms of a healthy relationship an unhealthy relationship a healthy relationship that turns unhealthy etc so you're kind of feeding this higher concept such that kids get this rich body of knowledge around the idea of love and relationships and if we think about other subjects as well we might have um, history we might have a concept of like democracy or um, tyranny or something like that that comes up um, throughout studying different um, areas of history and what we might want students to be able to do is to um, to talk about that concept of tyranny in terms of different time periods um, and how things have changed and uh, and stuff like that um so having a concept allows us to kind of continually link back to a big idea that's one thing um it helps us to kind of structure our bodies of knowledge another thing would be what you spoke about about anchoring so anchoring is the idea and, and ajibel talks about anchors um of of basically holding on to remembering the knowledge for longer when it's tied to a particular idea so by thinking of knowledge as being hierarchical we can think about uh, we we can um we can sort of teach in a way that helps students to anchor details to these these kind of higher concepts it also as teachers gives us a way to kind of um map out our curricula um to, if we think about knowledge in that way and we can see like what ideas reoccur. Um, it also helps us to prioritize. So if I know that one thing, uh, if I know that in English, love and relationships, I've decided that that's a really important concept. I'm, it stops me from, um, it, sorry, it helps me to choose the texts I'm going to teach. And it helps me to say, no, I'm not going to teach this because it doesn't feed my higher concept. Um, and that's that's sort of not what I'm going to do. And I think sometimes we're so inundated with things we could teach, especially in some subjects, that it actually helps us to potentially prioritise. Hmm. That's great. That's three excellent reasons there, Sarah. I think I was just pondering. I think there's possibly one other reason which which ties back to one of the primary goals of education and that is um, to facilitate transfer. So to help mm. students to actually apply something in a context other than the context in which we've actually taught the idea. So, a, a classic example of like the, the classic transfer study is by Gick and Holyoke in uh, 1980 and they'd look at um, – they teach people about how to attack castle effectively, which is essentially, you know, a attacking it from multiple angles um, and then they get students to – try to solve a problem and I know you know this study so I'm, I'm sharing this for the for the benefit no, of listeners. The, yeah. the, follow, the follow-up part of the study is they try to get um, participants to solve a question to do with um, fixing or addressing cancer in the body using radiation without like causing too much damage to the, the surrounding tissue. And the solution in both cases is basically to take a distributed approach and attack the target from multiple angles at the same time given the resources you've got and the collateral damage you you want to avoid etc 
But if if in the castle example, what students take away from it is concepts like castle, I don't know, sieges, like armies, and they link it to those ideas, then that doesn't help them at all to transfer this broader principle, which is of, I don't know, distributed attack or something like that um, in the new salute, in the new scenario. So if they do, so if a teacher does have this hierarchy that they're teaching and they're like, here's a, this castle scenario, but this is a principle or this is an instantiation of the broader principle, which is the idea of distributed attack. Like, I don't know, I'm just making that word up. I don't know if that's the one they think of in the study or whatever. Then the students might think, okay, we need to attack this cancer. Okay, what do I know about the attack? Oh, there's a one approach of attack called distributed attack. Maybe that works here. So, fundamentally, I think these meaningful bodies of knowledge um, help students to structure knowledge in ways that helps to facilitate transfer as well. That is, yeah, that is, uh, that is so well explained. Yeah, 100%. So, it's almost that, that idea of they give you that deep structure, I guess, don't they, of the, of the knowledge. And actually what, what we do naturally is we just focus on the surface structure, don't we, the castle, um, the cancer that kind of thing because that's that's just naturally what we do but what we're trying to do like you say is teach them that deep structure and potentially in our subjects the deep structure is these higher more generalized concepts um and that like you say kind of facilitate transfer such that you know i know exams are not the be all and end all but such that like if i'm sitting in an exam um and i'm you know reading an unseen poem which happens in english um in this country reading an unseen poem i can go hang on i notice here the deep structure of xyz and i can relate that to the poems i've read and and make the comparison there and have a much richer understanding 100%. Yeah. And like coming back to some of Sam Gibbs's ideas, it's like all texts are constructs. Whatever you're reading in English, it's going to be a construct. So there's always going to be some way you can relate that back. Not all, not all texts have balconies. So the fact that I remember <laughs> Romeo was on a balcony at one point, probably not that useful uh, in the vast majority of, of contexts. Yeah. It's fa- fascinating. Um, you, you talked about your, or you alluded to like meaningful and like less meaningful learning before, Sarah. I want to unpack that a little bit more. We have I've already addressed it a fair bit, but I want to unpack it a little bit more. Do you want to uh, tell us a little bit more about meaningful and less meaningful learning? Yeah. So um, if we think about what we've spoken about so far, we've said the end goal um, that we want as teachers, or as Jubel says, that we want as teachers is these rich, kind of vast, complex bodies of knowledge. And how are they formed? Well, they're formed through this process of meaningful learning. And meaningful learning happens through assimilation. We've talked about the assimilation being the connection between prior knowledge, so an existing knowledge in your in your mind, and the new idea that you're being taught. Um, so more or less meaningful is about how sort of how well you are able to connect the new information to your existing knowledge. And there's loads of variables in that. So if we think about the variables that there are, you could have really clear existing knowledge of something. Um, You could be, you know, not just a novice, you might be more like an advanced beginner as a student or, you know, moving on to proficient, more like an expert in something. And you've got lots of knowledge of something. So existing knowledge is really, really rich. Well, that's going to help you to meaningfully learn more information about that topic because you've got so much prior knowledge to bring to bear on it. 
So the state of your existing knowledge is one kind of variable um, that supports meaningful learning. The better your existing knowledge, the more able you are to meaningfully learn. And I find this when I go to education conferences. If I go and sit in in a talk that I know something about, I tend to get more out of it than when I go to a talk that I don't know anything about. So now I've started in these conferences picking the talks that I at least have some understanding of um, because I just seem to get more out of that half an hour talk than if I go into one about, you know, some kind of maths thing (laughs) or whatever it is, which I don't know much about. Um, Interesting as it may be, I don't tend to kind of get a lot out of it. So you've got this idea of the quality of your existing knowledge affects how well you can meaningfully learn. And that's really important. But you've also got the idea that like as a teacher, you tend to be kind of the expert in the room on something and the students tend to be less expert than you. Sometimes they're relatively knowledge uh, novice, sorry. So when you're teaching something, you know that to meaningfully learn, they've got to con- you've got to connect what you're saying to their existing knowledge. So the way that you deliver that new information will also make the new information more or less meaningful to the students. So if you just tell them a definition, so we talked about, let's go back to osmosis because it's a definition that I remember. Um, and you've got the uh, the high concentration, low concentration, semi-permeable membrane. You just put that up on the board. But students um, kind of don't. They did. They talked about concentration weeks and weeks ago. They're not going to re- not going to really remember what it is. Then you've put up a statement that's not particularly meaningful to them. If instead you start to tap into their understanding of concentration first and get them to remember what is a high concentration, what's a low concentration. Maybe you show them an example of osmosis and then you kind of give them this definition and explain what it is. Then you've helped to bring their prior knowledge to the fore and make it more meaningful. So we've got the idea, we've got two things there. We've got the quality of existing knowledge, but we've also got like how well it's activated in your teaching as well. And then we've kind of got what we talked about earlier, Ollie, when we talked about the amount of like connections that you're able to make. So that obviously depends on the quality of your of your prior knowledge and on what your teacher says. But it also like depends on like your teacher kind of developing your knowledge over time as well. So we probably wouldn't just do five minutes on what osmosis is. We'll look at different examples of osmosis. <coughs> Sorry, we might compare it to a com- a concept that gets confused with osmosis a lot, like diffusion, and we might explain why why is diffusion not osmosis, and why is os- is osmosis like a type of diffusion that we might then like talk about it so that students then have the connection to concepts that might confuse them as well, and they're able to connect to those concepts and differentiate between them too, and then you start to move even further down that continuum towards meaningful learning so there's lots of various variables involved and there's lots of things we can do to kind of move students down towards that more meaningful uh, end of the continuum i think that's really valuable and there were kind of for me there were three really practical insights from that that can then be used to inform teachers teaching so the three things you talked about to facilitate meaningful learning are quality of existing knowledge how well it's activated and how many connections are made to it 
So thinking about that, what do teachers need to do? Well, in terms of quality of existing knowledge, they need to make sure that the the knowledge that they're building over time is that high quality knowledge, that kind of highly highly structured and well integrated knowledge based around key big ideas um, that have transfer power. I guess would be one way to put it. So that's a quality existing knowledge. The how well it's activated idea is really crucial as well. And this this relates to what you were talking to before about like what we're connecting the knowledge to. So I might already know a little bit about um, power or uh, status or whatever it might be. But if the teacher doesn't highlight to me that when we're learning about Romeo, we're actually tapping into that some of those concepts, I'm going to end up connecting that knowledge to a balcony, even though I do have prior knowledge around power and status and love and so on. So the teacher's core role there, and you, you highlighted this well in your book and also in one of your, your blog posts, like the crucial role of the teacher in being really explicit about like, we're just learn about this and what I want you to connect this to is the thing we learned before about X, Y, Z. So that's the second second part. And the third part in terms of how many connections you make, this is just the teacher going, okay, well, so they've got the prior knowledge. I've, I've activated that core piece of knowledge and linked it, tried to help students link the new information to that that relevant, that most relevant and most useful um, prior information. But what other related concepts are there that are likely in students' long-term memories that I need to either help students to see the similarities with this new concept and or the differences with this new concept so that they can kind of make those really clear distinctions. I think those three tips, quality of existing knowledge, how well it's activated and how many connections you can make are like really informative for teachers and super, uh, super actionable. Did you want to add anything to that? No, I'm really glad that you agree with that because I I found that really, really useful. There's just almost no point in teaching someone something unless you're going to try to connect it to um, some kind of like stable um, prior knowledge. And I think like often the way we sequence our curricula help us because we can say, oh, you know, we taught them that thing which we can connect back to and that's why we sequenced it in that way. But sometimes we find ourselves teaching things and we're like, oh God, like I don't know, I don't know what to link this to. And um I think it was Ajibos that's who said this, or if not, it was in an experiment that sort of in, um informed by his work. But they it's the idea that you can you can tap into their real world knowledge as well. Like you possibly you probably do this in maths when you're you know trying to make things sometimes um, kind of realistic and get them to think about how to use maths in real life. Sometimes you kind of tap into their real world knowledge, and that's good, stable, existing knowledge as well that you can kind of tap into. But yeah, I think those those three things that you've pulled out are um, probably the like really really important things, and it, it harks back to. Um, the the links, the teacher making the explicit links harks back to your point about the castle and the tumour example. If you don't make those links for them, they're going to see the castle and the tumour and they're not going to see the deep structure. So we, we, because they're kind of novices, we have to sort of point out that deep structure quite a lot. They'll start to be able to do it once they get rolling with it. They'll start to be able to do it. I love it in English when they start to be able to like spot motifs and spot things going on. But at least at first and often for some students throughout, you do need to be explicit about those those links because novices do not see things in the same way as experts. 
Mm. And I mean, that doesn't mean you always have to, of course, as you know, say like, this relates to this prior thing. You can start by saying, what might this relate to? Or what are some themes we've touched on before this relates back to? Give them opportunity. But if they can't make those connections themselves, help them make the, those connections so they don't, they don't leave without them. I wanted to, um, as we are help ourselves building richer schema about the concept of meaningful learning and trying to help listeners to do the same, I wanted to build upon this kind of, or, or, but, potentially even a test this uh, Venn diagram uh, example that you provided in, in the book. Did, could you just reiterate that for, for listeners and then um, I, I'm keen to dissect it a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, we talked about what assimilation is and I was saying that I sort of, in my mind's eye, kind of see it as like a Venn diagram um, a little bit where one circle is your existing knowledge and the other circle is the new idea. And assimilation is when those two circles start to kind of overlap. And what you've got, just like in the Venn diagram, you've kind of got that middle part where the circles have overlapped. And that's the kind of new meaning that you've started to form. And it's a it's a mixture of your existing knowledge and the new idea. Mm-hmm. Got it. So I, I would like to propose <laughs> that um, a different way to represent it might be either like having a line connecting both and then like another circle in the middle that represents a new idea or maybe like some sort of idea of two more like two rivers flowing and then joining or more like um what what could you say like uh what's it what is it called when you like oh grafting like grafting of a plant so you've got like a new pit and you've got like an existing plant and you like connect them and that's because and this is just my kind of maths brain working Within a Venn, like within a Venn diagram, you've got two circles. One represents one thing; the second represents the other, and the crossover represents the members of each group that are also a member of the other group. So the suggestion mm. that we can have a Venn diagram of like prior knowledge and new knowledge, and that there is some overlap between those two circles, to me seems a contradiction because if it is new knowledge, then it's not prior knowledge. And if it's prior knowledge, then it's not new knowledge. So mm. there actually can't be an overlap between those two circles, um, if you know what I mean. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you're, you're bringing a, a much better knowledge of what Venn diagrams <laughs> to me. So that's good. Yeah, I wish I'd spoken to you before, Ollie. Um, I think my idea of it was that the new meaning in the middle, so you would have got this and just, just saying it out loud for myself, really, the new meaning in the middle is kind of a combination of, combination of, so I'm trying to, just, just saying it out loud, combination of yeah, existing it. knowledge and new knowledge, but it's, but it's something, it's something new. And actually, it, it's like a diff, it's like a different it's a different thing. So when you're saying two circles with a circle in the middle, okay. So sorry. So w- why I think the two circles with a circle in the middle might not work is because, as you was trying to say that the existing knowledge is forever changed by the new idea. So if you've still got the new idea, then isn't its own thing anymore. Mm. If that makes sense, so maybe one of your other ones that wasn't those two circles might be better. Uh, three circles might be better. Yeah, there. maybe but it's does just that make like. Sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So maybe it's like I don't know. It's like when you watch like cells come close to each other, and then maybe they like connect and they become like one big weird weird shaped bubble. <laughs> it's not like the two distinct, like something like that. Um, yeah. You know, where it's like 
the 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 amalgamation of the two becomes like slightly larger in like a different shape or something and and you 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 retain elements of the initial parts but there's also like this this melding of them um in yeah. some way um, yeah I like that. I just I just yeah the the reason why I chose that as well was because when we got on to talk about forgetting forgetting is when that that it slides further over and you essentially your new knowledge becomes kind of engulfed by the existing knowledge so whatever mm-hmm. whatever we choose would need to kind of then reflect the fact that and like you're saying like it's so, so something could be the cells coming together could, could it could bear out a kind of new cell but then it would mm-hmm. over time have to then resemble the older one the existing knowledge yeah again. okay yeah so yeah, no, that makes sense. It's just becomes so, really complicated. Sorry. No, that's cool. So basically, so one example of that, and like a concrete example of this is like when I teach people about the idea of the split attention effect. Right. This mm-hmm. is like a classic thing that happens. So I teach people about the split attention effect, which is basically when information that must be combined should be placed together in space and time. So you've got like a diagram, and you've got some labels for the diagram. If they're mm-hmm. physically separate, then the learner has to like hold either the diagram in working memory or the labels in working memory um, to then be able to integrate it. And that causes extraneous cognitive load, right? Um, now, what happens over time, someone will come to my workshop, like some percentage of people immediately after the presentation of that concept will be able to articulate it. Some percentage of them won't. Um, but let's focus on the percentage who can articulate it. But then a certain subset of those, which in my experience is like, probably the majority or the vast majority a couple of months later if someone asks them what the split attention effect is they'll end up with some sort of statement like oh it's when you're like trying to work and listen to music at the same time and you're mm-hmm. like attention split between those two things right which is like a completely different concept it's not split attention so that's they've taken this label which is a distinct concept and they've like it's ended up being the overlap or like overlapped or subsumed by the prior like everyday understanding of like being distracted, like this general concept of being distracted. So I think that's a really like fundamentally like it's a core concept. This idea of forgetting through uh, what's a, how would I, as you explain that. So he he calls it a obliterative subsum- subsumption, which was a phrase I did not use in the book because I just thought it was just horrible. <laughs> but um, okay, yeah, so that's I, I love that phrase. Though. <laughs> so um, we've got this like obliterative subsumption. Um, which is a which is a great word in itself. I'm wondering how that <laughs> the, the the phrase obliterative subsumption could be obliteratively subsumed over time in my own mind. But that's a that's a thought for another day. Anyway, so we've got that. But perhaps one way to kind of uh, represent it would be you've got a yellow circle, you've got a blue circle representing new and old or old and new knowledge. As they come together, they actually change color. And what do you get? You get green. You get green in the space where they're actually mixing and you've got a bit of the yellow mm. and a bit of the green, the blue sitting on the outside. Mm-hmm. But subsumptive obliteration is when actually when they, they, they keep on coming together and they fully come mm. together and you end up with just blue, which was the original knowledge. So, you've actually mm-hmm. lost all the distinction of the yellow. That might be one way. Yeah, or the, or the um, you end up with, with blue that's like slightly tinged by a slightly so the the prior yeah i love this so the, the prior knowledge is forever changed but only so slightly it's like almost when yeah i I've, since reading as say that about forgetting i've realized that it really resonates doesn't it just the way you said about the split attention effect you found it resonating mm. i found it resonates too like 
we do a lot of um and maybe maybe listeners will have the same experience of like when you go into breakout rooms on zoom or something when you you go into breakout rooms to discuss something and you know what you want to say so you've got you've got your opinion and you go into the breakout room and you, you say your opinion, other people say their opinions and you're listening to their opinions. And then you go back into the main room and then someone says, oh, group two, Sarah, tell us about what, you know, your group said. And you were listening, but your opinion is the one that really stands out, isn't it? And like, and everyone else's opinion is kind of the one that sort of, you kind of started to merge with it and it's all getting, you know, you've forgotten it already, basically. And it's the idea that your existing knowledge is this, is a strong anchor there. And over time, even short periods of time, but, but often longer periods of time, if you've learned something meaning, meaningfully, eventually it becomes more and more like your existing knowledge, but it's forever changed slightly. Like I know there was something else, but I can't quite remember what it was, that sort of thing. But it mm. becomes more like that existing knowledge. And I feel like we've all kind of got examples of when that's happened. Yeah, Frederick Bartlett talks about this idea as well. He talks, the, the, the quote is, we flatten novel information and sharpen familiar information during assimilation, which I think is, is just fantastic. I'm trying to find this study. Okay, I, I think I found it. So there was this really interesting study um, that he referred to. It included like a Native American story um, that was read to non-Native American participants and then they had to tell back the story and they found that um through several iterations it's kind of the like idea of chinese whispers which is a phrase i can use because i'm actually chinese um through like this process of chinese whispers the the story gets changed to be more and more like uh standard western narrative and so uh Mm -hmm. different concepts that were more foreign to the uh, non-Native American participants, like the strange appearance of ghosts, like and like the the fact that these ghosts had um, really meaningful things to communicate, um, because that's not like a really strong theme within Western culture. Like they they were just those those features were flattened, um, and the stuff that was more relevant or seemed more familiar to the the people sharing the story like, I don't know, maybe like a gunfight or something, um, were sharpened and so they became enhanced. So this is a really uh, another example of how over time uh, subsumptive obliteration um, (laughs) can occur. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. I had not read that study. That sounds really interesting. Makes sense. So so we've we've interested some... We've we've introduced some interested uh, terminology already, Sarah. I want in- us to introduce some more. So there was you you provide in the book some ideas, some different types of assimilation. You talked about um, subsuming, progressive differentiation, superordinate learning, combinatorial learning, and integrative reconciliation. Uh, I love some new words, Sarah. Maybe we can go through all of them. In fact, let look. My cognitive drive is kind of probably going to mean that we're going to get through all of them and then we can discuss <laughs> cognitive drive after that. So, okay. take, take us, introduce one and tell us what it's all about, Sarah. Yeah, sure. Um, so, just to say, um, this is, I think this is why Azubel's theory has not been taken off massively before uh, in recent times. It's because of the language that he uses. I think it's really opaque. Um, I, when I read his book, Ollie, it took me like two months to read, to read one book. 
book because I was trying to really understand it and it's just it's just felt really opaque um which is the irony of someone who's writing about learning making it difficult for you to learn their theory is is yeah is interesting could um, it be that the esoteric language militates against subsumptive obliteration <laughs> to say that in comment <laughs> To say that, to say that in more uh, sensible terms, could it could it be that uh, Alzubel has purposefully chosen strange words to make it less likely that the reader um, assimilates these ideas into their prior knowledge in a way that loses the meaningful distinctions that he's trying to make? It it could that could very be much be possible. What I'd say with his theory though is he's he's big on connecting to prior knowledge, so he needs to explain these things really really well for you to get them. And to be fair, he his book is structured such that he like returns to things. He like he gives you this overview and then like returns to things again and again. And actually, by the time you have studied his book properly, you could never forget it. Um, so it is, it is written in a very clever way, I think. Anyway, these, these these funny terms, let's talk about them. So there's different types of assimilation, and we've said that assimilation is um, is when you connect, we integrate uh, existing knowledge with new ideas, and that's the way that we want students to learn. Um, and so there's different ways. And and, and the, the the big one for Azubel, the, the one he says is the most efficient way of learning is through subsumption. So that's when... Um, students grasp a kind of more generalized idea so if we think about the hierarchy of concepts it would be one of the higher kind of concepts first and they have this kind of even slightly naive conception of the concept first so like say um the concept is democracy right they'd have a kind of a sense of what democracy is before i then go and teach some more detailed events where you know the important concept is this idea of democracy so um you know subsumption is when is when when students have in their minds this more generalized concept and they're able to connect the detail from the lesson to this more um, generalized concept and it aids their understanding of both the detail and it makes this concept of democracy grow and grow as a kind of body of knowledge. So that's subsumption. He says that that's the best way of learning and that would make sense because Azubel is saying that a hierarchy of knowledge is, is kind of how knowledge is structured. So he's saying teach teach that higher concept first, that more generalized concept first, and help them to view the lesson or the learning episode through the lens of that concept so that they can then link the detail to it. So that's subsumption. Basically helping students helping students understand where the idea fits in the hierarchy. Um, I don't think so. I think that I think subsumption can happen even if there are multiple ideas because i mean we're thinking we're thinking about it in a very like um kind of we're thinking about it as if we've drawn out these like layers of concepts but i suppose like in your mind you're always going to have like with the higher concept you're going to always going to have an understanding of that higher concept that links to other concepts so you you're just subsuming another concept under that concept if that makes sense i don't think it has to be multiple i don't remember as you're already talking about that all that much though Okay, so 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 what? And I'm I'm trying to get this clear in my head because just so I can kind of have a really clearer picture when I'm trying to help students to to learn things and for for listeners. So mm. my, my initial uh, proposition was that 
all higher order concepts must initially be taught through superordinate learning. That is saying, hey, you know this lower order concept or idea or experience you already have. That's actually an example of this higher order idea. And from there, and it's only after that we use that approach to teach a higher order concept that we can actually use subsumption and say, hey, you know that higher order concept. This lower order concept is another example of that. Yeah, sorry. Would you agree? what you mean. Yeah, I do agree with that. Um, Because there's a difference between like how you, I suppose, like, not, I don't want to use the word naturally learn something, but like how you would like naturally explain something and your curriculum and like how you would learn those higher order concepts from experience when you're young and like more detailed examples as you get older and then to like actually learning it in a curriculum sense is like to, uh, like two different things so yeah i agree i agree with what you're saying there yeah cool and i think that's a helpful distinction because if we think about like the sam gibbs episode that we just had and we've discussed a bit if we do want to if we want to say we want to teach a concept like curriculum hmm. Like we can say like you start with the higher order concepts, but like actually you don't start with the higher order concepts. Mm. You start with the prior knowledge that you can identify that you think you're, the vast majority of your students will already have mm-hmm. and say and like hopefully a few examples at that level and say these are examples of this higher order concept, which mm. you now have like a developing understanding of. But as we go on through this curriculum, we're going to connect more and more examples to this big idea and you're going to get a rich and richer understanding of this bigger idea that's right i well i'm certain that's right because otherwise how would that concept ever be meaningful and so when we come on to talk about advanced organizers which is um the tool that asibel proposes that we use to prepare students to learn meaningfully that's what an advanced organizer does it um it creates um a bridge between like stuff the learner already knows um which tends to be kind of more detailed concepts to understand that higher concept to then link the the um, curriculum stuff to it so yeah i think that's that's a good way of describing it yeah and that's a nice term like a bridge to the from the prior knowledge to the new concept then subsequent bridges down um yeah Great. So we've got we've heard of subsuming. What that's like? Well, I'm going to talk about it. We've heard of superordinate learning, and that's when you work from a uh, initial prior knowledge to a higher order concept. We've heard about subsumption, which is um, as as you both suggests, well, as you both suggests, is the most sufficient way. Is when you start with a higher order concept and say, you know, that higher order thing you already know about. Well, this thing that I'm teaching now is an example of that. Mm. What are some other ways of learning that as you both talks about? So I don't know too much about this third one. He doesn't talk about it loads. Um, but he does also talk about combinatorial learning, um, which is essentially when you're learning concepts that don't fit together in a hierarchy. They're kind of almost on the, the same rung of the hierarchy. So no, 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 neither concept is higher or higher than the other. And when we talk about higher and lower, um, this is there isn't like a fixed idea of in English these are the high concepts that we teach and you know it's it's debated isn't it it's debated it's maybe less debated in maths I don't know but it's it's, quite, it's debated in English in history and in other subjects um so what we decide is the higher is is what we decide the higher concept is is there isn't some kind of god given higher concept we decide what goes in our curricula and, and what concepts we teach so um 
so when I'm talking about the hierarchy, I'm talking about the decided hierarchy by us as teachers, not some kind of as you've mapped out all the subjects and this is what he says is the hierarchy. Um, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but essentially the, the combinatorial one is that these these two ideas actually they neither subsumes the other. Not one doesn't sit higher than the other, and um, you know, but you still are trying to teach them. Um, and he gives um, an example from um, he gives an example from I think economics. He talks about demand and price, and he says neither of those are kind of sit above in the hierarchy. They both just relate to each other, but not in a hierarchical way. Um, and Chris Such, who who supported me in in writing the book, um, gave an example from geography. I think it was to do with it was to do with like tectonic plates and something else. But like essentially concepts that do not sit above one another; they actually sit kind of more like alongside each other. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And and I mean, does does Aussie Bill have like? practical advice i mean i don't know how much advice practical advice as bill has in general like if, if that's like the bent of his, his writing or not but but from your understanding of combinatorial learning does that what does that mean for us as teachers mm, that's a good question so again um I, he, in terms of how how practical he is the advanced organizers are really his like practical and and he's tested them you know in in uh in experiments and so of others so that's his kind of practical stuff but other than that he sort of intimates some some kind of practical things you can do and what he says about combinatorial learning is if you're teaching concepts where there isn't a hierarchy neither is going to subsume the other so you've got to watch out basically you've got to watch out that the two concepts don't become confused with each other and you've got to watch out um that the two concepts don't get forgotten because they're not like being subsumed under a, another concept so easily, the anchor isn't there so much. So he's saying that actually you might need to return to them um, and return to like the distinctions between them more often to get students to learn them. And that's that's as far as he seems to go with combinatorial learning, or as far as I've okay. read. That's helpful, Sarah. Um, are there any other types of learning that that you think teachers should know about? So. This is, these aren't types of these aren't types of assimilation, but they are kind of thing. They are they are and they aren't. They're not the types like as in subsumptions, superordinate, and combinatorial world about that hierarchy. Um, but there are a couple of other phrases that he uses that I find particularly interesting. So one of them is progressive differentiation, and that's a, a again a sort of gosh the, the terminology we've got to get our head around here but essentially yeah, progressive so differentiation I, so i'm imagining a classroom where they're talking about teaching students about critical race theory yeah <laughs> uh, that's the progressive part and they're making sure that the instruction is like tailored to each individual student's needs yeah. that's the differential yeah. differentiation but um how's my subsumptive obliteration gone there <laughs> yeah it's perfect example there and that's probably what you'll remember in a few weeks time about it yeah unfortunately um, <laughs> but yeah brought, brought to bear your your prior knowledge um on that um but yeah he's i think this this is a really interesting concept because this is essentially how your bodies of knowledge unfold 
So if we take this idea of democracy again, right, this concept of democracy, and we start with those those lovely, gorgeous little kids who are doing their like school council and they're learning that like everyone has a vote and each vote counts and we've got to listen to everybody's vote and count them up and then whoever's got the most votes wins and that kind of thing. And that's their kind of naive concept of democracy at that age. And and that's like, so you think about democracy sitting at the top of this hierarchy and that's what they understand. It's a naive concept of democracy. But then they start to learn about like the ancient Greeks um, in history and they start to maybe start paying attention to politics a little bit as they as they get older and they learn about like proportional representation and first past the post and they, they start to think that there's different ways that democracy can start to play out. And then in history, they start learning about like regimes where they they are not democratic and what that looks like and what it means to kind of live under kind of an autocratic regime. And they see that playing out in the news in different um, ideas. And maybe they read about the Arab Spring and like, you know, they, they start to kind of connect this idea, all these ideas to democracy. Now, imagine that body of knowledge, that idea of democracy is like un, it's unfolding. As they get older, it's unfolding. There's lots of details sitting, starting to sit under underneath it and it's unfolding it's unfolding it's unfolding it's like lovely pyramid of kind of knowledge that sits connected to underneath this idea of democracy and this is Azubel's kind of idea of progressive differentiation and it's the idea that as you learn more and more about a concept it becomes progressively more and more um, detailed and rich and specific in different ways and you can you know you can watch that sort of um, knowledge unfolding and that happens when we assimilate those ideas with each other and with this higher concept of democracy cool so you're talking about kind of the basically the process of learning over time and how detail is added um to the the knowledge structure progressively so i understand the progressive part in terms of like it happens over time um in terms of differentiation what because differentiation usually means like to tell apart or to like make distinctions Mm. between so like what are we differentiating in within progressive differentiation yeah good question um (laughs) i see it as and i say i see it as just in case i've kind of got this wrong um but i see it as like so when Ashabel talks about forgetting, he's talking about ideas getting kind of obliteratively subsumed or engulfed by our prior knowledge. Through progressive differentiation, we're keeping those ideas alive. They're, they're getting linked to this idea of um, democracy, but they sit as like distinct ideas as well, if that makes sense. So we've learned them in such a way that they link to this idea and they enrich this concept of democracy, but we can also remember them as ideas in their own right. Mm, yeah okay so i'm I'm saying like progressive differentiation is kind of like the differentiation part i'm hearing is like seeing nuances in the differences like greater refinements of understanding of the different types of things that fit in this category so an example i'm thinking of now is like a kid learns a concept of dog which i know is an example you learn you you, you talked about in, in your book a dog it's like a thing that says wolf that has four legs and a tail and fur something like that right so that's a that's a dog but that becomes progressively differentiated over time so there's dogs okay there's like big dogs and there's like small dogs okay that's a pretty simple different differentiation uh, there's also like working dogs and pet dogs that's another differentiation and then there's like 
um, you could probably learn about like the origins of different dog breeds. So, like some come from wolves and some come from, I don't know, they probably all come from wolves. Some come from foxes. I don't know. And so, and over time, then you get down to the point where like, oh, you've got like these like German dashing, like, oh, sorry, there's like uh, golden retrievers and there's like Labradors and the actual differences between golden retrievers and lab- Labradors are what they've historically been used for. I don't know that. I'm making that up, the length of their hair, the color of their hair, and so on. So we're progressively over time making distinctions and differentiations between the different types of dogs that exist and in so doing gaining a deeper and deeper understanding of what this broader, like this this keystone concept of dog is as well as like the, the instantiations thereof. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really nice simple example of it and I think the what you just said, I wish I'd used this phrases in my book. <laughs> so many that you use are like, damn, why did I not think of that? But refinement of understanding is, a, I think, a really good way of putting it. Um, yeah, you're, you're feeding that higher concept with lots of details and developing that higher concept and refining your understanding of it in by adding this kind of these branches of knowledge and we're talking about knowledge when when you gave that example we're obviously talking about knowledge that's quite factual there aren't we but there's also knowledge that's like the way you feel about things as well that comes into it like um how you feel about dogs um you know you might have got a dog kind of lurched at you when you were young and you're scared of a dog and then you get a pet dog and actually you start to you know feel that actually they're lovely loyal companions and so it's not just our kind of factual knowledge but it's also imbued by things like our kind of emotions and stuff as well that, that's great and i mean another example of that is like if we think of someone who's like good at self-regulating or like knows himself well you know like a, a young child might be able to say like i'm happy or like i'm angry or i'm sad um but those concepts become progressively differentiated so like instead of just being angry you'll be like frustrated or you'll be annoyed or you'll be worked up i don't know obviously my differentiation of the the concept of angry isn't su- supremely well developed yet i'll keep working on that but <laughs> so i think that's a that's a good concept that's a good point you're making sarah like this progressive differentiation happens in in all domains of knowledge and potentially also experience yeah yeah and that's and that's why we kind of come to a really important realization that um i had <laughs> which i probably should have known before and maybe your listeners kind of have, have had which is that everybody sitting in front of you their prior knowledge of even the simplest of concepts is different so take dog for example um i you know find dogs quite scary um i got actually bitten on the bum by a dog uh, only a few years ago so yeah find them quite scary um whereas other people like my my husband thinks they're the most the sweetest most wonderful things ever so even though we have a very very similar conception of what a dog is a shared understanding of what a dog is we could both point to most dogs and say that's a dog um we also have different um prior knowledge of dogs different existing understanding of dogs um, because we feel differently um, about dogs um, and obviously we know different things about dogs because we've experienced different dogs in our lives so even with very simple concepts the 30 students sitting in front of you will have at least some kind of difference in understanding of them even if you've taught the same students from year seven to year 11 or wherever your kind of grades are um, and you taught maybe for the whole of their lives you they've had the same teacher and they've experienced the same explanations by the same teacher all the time they're still going to have 
different knowledge of sub of, of different topics. Um, and that's a really important point because we're saying that meaningful learning happens when you connect existing knowledge to new ideas. And if everybody's existing knowledge is at least slightly different and sometimes very different, then that's a real challenge for teachers to ascertain like, what that knowledge is, how to build upon that knowledge, and also to assess like how well have I managed to do that? What directions has everyone taken my explanation in? Because they can't take it in the same direction because they've all got different starting points. Yeah, it's such it's such a crucial point. Um, so, like, what? And we'll come back to these different types of learning in a moment. But, like, what for you, Sarah? What does this mean for teachers? This insight that you know the most important thing for teacher to consider is like what the student already knows ascertain this and teach accordingly to butcher as bell's quote um what do we actually do does this mean that we need do we need to move towards this idea of like differentiation like work mapping the prior knowledge of every student and trying to give them an example that relates to it or or is is there is there something else we should be doing so as would say no to that uh, i think he he doesn't funnily enough he doesn't the ascertain it bit part of the quote he doesn't talk much about practical strategies that we can actually do to ascertain prior knowledge and um, his contemporary novak talks about concept mapping as a way of a, a way of doing that but even that's flawed in, in you know it's not going to get to the heart of kind of exactly how how students think but essentially what azubel says is what we try to do through our teaching is we try to create a shared meaning um, in neuroscience, they kind of call it, call it like the core or the gist of a memory. It's like the shared meaning, the core, the gist is the same um, or very, very similar because it can't be exactly the same, but very, very similar amongst our students such that we can have a conversation about that concept and all know what we mean by it. And then, you know, from there, the, the sort of the fluffier edges of it are where, you know, students have got different um, conceptions. And that's lovely because we want that creativity to happen very often. But we want to create a shared meaning. And luckily, in the kind of cultures that we live in, we can draw upon relatively similar prior knowledge to be able to teach um, new ideas. So we have to be aware that students will take things in different directions. And so we have to check their, you know, check for meaning quite a lot, check what they what they seem to know. But um, we can create this shared meaning by virtue of us kind of all generally having grown up in a similar culture and having formed similar concepts. So my con so I can have a conversation with my partner about dogs quite easily because we both know what we mean by dogs and he can say, let's get a dog. And I can say, let's definitely not get a dog. <laughs> and we can know what each other means, but um, we can still have round the edges of that a different conception of what those, what those that concept really means to both of us. So the key is a shared, we're trying to create a shared meaning um, with between students. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the, for me, the takeaway there is like one identify things that it's highly likely all your students are going to already know. So if we're teaching an example of, I don't know, power, you might think about everyone knows of the idea of like the prime minister or like probably a better example. Everyone knows of the principal in the school. They have power. They can suspend you, expel you and so on. Every kid at the school most likely knows that principal. And also here's another example of power that we're seeing in this Shakespearean play in this particular passage and we all have a common experience of that because we all just read that passage 
and then, you know, superordinate learning. These both, both relate to this broader idea of power that we're going to be like building our understanding of um, through progressive differentiation uh, over the course of, of this unit in your school. So, yeah, build, build like prior, prior experience. In fact, in explicit direct instruction, Hollingsworth and Yabara, they talk about um, their, the two methods of activating prior knowledge. It's like um, draw upon a, sh- a, sh- a shared experience or yeah, draw upon a shared experience or prior knowledge that's shared or generate uh, a shared experience, which is like if you're trying to teach something about like the idea of precision, you might say everybody like look at the, the time on the clock on the wall. Write that down. Okay, now everybody, this is my phone. Look at the time uh, on my phone. Write that down. What's the difference between these? Okay, the difference is um, a measure of precision. Um, and so you're actually doing something which is creating this shared experience. So that mm-hmm. sounds like explicit direct instruction is basically drawn the same conclusions for activating prior knowledge mm-hmm. as, uh, as Algie Bell has as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sarah, what about? Integrative reconciliation, a word that's quite, or a term that's quite hard to say. What, yeah. What's that all about? about? Um, so, we, yeah, we've, we've talked about um, superordinate learning. We've talked about how, like, that's when you know the detail and then you kind of learn a kind of subsumer that sort of captures that detail. We've talked about subsumptive learning. We've talked about how that's when um, you learn that kind of um more generalized concept and that help, that subsumes the detail underneath it and we've talked about combinatorial learning where it's kind of um where we've got those concepts that don't relate in a hierarchy but they kind of relate to each other on more on the same level um and those are kind of types of assimilation um and then we've got this idea of integrative reconciliation so don't don't worry too much about the about the term there <laughs> it's very difficult to say but essentially um Azibel kind of um, sets up this problem of of when we we kind of learn stuff. He says that um, a big problem that we have is that we tend to kind of compartmentalize ideas, so like treat them as quite separate from one another. And he gives the example of textbooks, and he says that a lot of textbooks are set up such that um, ideas. Um, you know, you might learn the first topic in chapter one and that topic is not brought up again throughout the rest of the textbook so that you don't understand how that topic links to the other topics. And he calls that compartmentalization. And he says that that's, there's a real danger of that. Um, and you can see from his theory how, how he would find that, you know, the kind of really, really bad thing because he's all about the kind of connected bodies of knowledge. And how can you form a connected body of knowledge if you treat all ideas as completely like sort of separate islands of knowledge. So um, he says that like the problem is that, you know, we've got this, like, this kind of compartmentalization and often students will kind of come to a lesson. There's a new topic and they won't recognize that it links in lots of ways to other things that they have learned. And what they'll do is they'll treat it as separate or um, they might learn something and it's, they, they might think it contradicts something that they've learned in the past. And they kind of, they're not really sure how to manage that contradiction, um, for example. And he talks about this, the, the best thing to do in those circumstances is to um, kind of support them with this process of integrative reconciliation. So that's where they integrate the kind of conflicting or um ideas that they had compartmentalized 
and um and reconcile them with each other um and the way that he suggests that that we do that is by like kind of reconciling them under a more generalized concept so um uh, we need a concrete example of this um and the concrete example i give in the book is is hopefully a, a simple enough one um is about a kind of students maybe in primary school who are learning about types of animals um and they um learn that there are like animals that are kept as pets and there are animals that are kept as kind of farm animals um and then they're reading a story maybe and they um the, the farmer in the story has a dog and the dog is actually you know a um a, a working dog and um they kind of can't get their heads around it because a dog's a pet surely a dog's a pet that sits by the fire and you know keeps you company and actually what the teacher does is is help them to understand this this more generalized concept and the more generalized concept is that um essentially um animals are kept for different purposes um and you know there could be animals that live on a farm animals that are your, your pets but sitting above that is this idea that animals are kept for purposes and therefore a dog can be both your pet on the farm and also this kind of like working dog um, that helps to like herd the sheep or whatever it is so the idea is that in integrative reconciliation is helping students to understand um, ideas that might conflict or compartmentalized ideas they might compartmentalize by kind of integrating them um, underneath a more generalized concept that helps to explain them. That's great. Does this also relate to the idea of looking for similarities and similarities and differences? Like, could that be another way? of reconciling some concepts that you're trying to integrate yeah do you have some do you have a, a concrete example in mind when you say that Oli? not in mind when i say it but perhaps i can come up with one um so let's look at the idea of um some something we've been learning today you know the idea of um subsuming as a way of assimilation versus superordinate learning as a way of assimilation mm -hmm. now they are quite distinct right um, and I mean the in integrative reconciliation, as you talked about it, the way to kind of reconcile some misunderstanding about them could be to kind of say, "Oh, they're both types of assimilation." But another another part of that is saying, "Well, what's actually similar about those two things? Well, both both types of assimilation, but actually, what's different about them as well? Is that related as well, or, or am I off on a kind of different path?" No, I think I think that's a really good, really good point. You're helping to like put them under the same bracket, but keep them distinct at the same time. And integrative re reconciliation is is like that. It helps to unite them under a particular concept whilst preserving like what's different about them. Um, when we come later to talk about like practical implications of Azubel's theory, we'll talk um, about advanced organisers um, and we'll talk about um, comparative um, kind of advanced organisers. And in that's really fits in with what you're saying there, Ollie, about making sure you're clear with students about the similarities between certain ideas and the differences as well. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. 
Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will include why we need Bell's theory of learning, what Bell sees as the end goal of student learning, the idea of bodies of knowledge, concepts and propositions. We'll hear all about assimilation of different types of learning and supporting learning such as subsumption, superordinate learning, progressive differentiation, combinatorial learning, and integrative reconciliation. We'll recap how teachers can scaffold assimilation. We'll look into advanced organisers and how teachers can use them to support student learning. We'll delve into the power of self-explanation and concept mapping and ideas about how to use these strategies effectively in the classroom. We'll also reflect upon the role of cognitive drive in learning and so much more if that isn't enough already. At higher tiers, ERRR supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR, clip requests of your favourite episode segments, and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So, if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. Sarah. We've covered a lot of very complicated words so far and complicated ideas. How has getting your head around these concepts such as subsuming, progressive differentiation, superordinate learning, combinatorial learning, integrative reconciliation, how has it helped you to better understand teaching and learning? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it's so I think I said I said at the at the beginning and I kind of reiterate this like it's it's focused me I think on on the right end goal um which you know isn't that students are able to parrot back certain ideas distinct ideas it's that they're able to um can have this kind of really integrated connected body of knowledge um and Azibel's really big on this idea of like the connections between things but also the distinctions between things as well and that's it's really helped me to think about knowledge in a, in a different way it's also helped me to think about knowledge in a hierarchical sense as well which may not work for every subject um, but I think it's an interesting discussion to have about like how not how do we structure knowledge in the discipline that we're that we're teaching and I used to be an English teacher and thinking about um, thinking about those concepts, and I know you've had kind of Sam Gibbs um, uh, doing her, her kind of uh, talking about her um, really kind of important ideas in English and, and how this relates to that and how these you've got these kind of concepts that reoccur. Um, and then as you was talking about this, this idea of subsumption and that those concepts are almost like what we should build our curriculum around. Um, and that, that was quite a sort of, exciting idea in my mind because I can see how then we're focusing 
on particular ideas in the English curriculum rather than what I did when I was teaching, which was jump around quite a lot, try to cover everything and almost not know what to focus on. I think Azubel gives us the um, license to focus on particular ideas because those are the ideas that we're going to develop and those are the ideas that um, are going to kind of unfold and um and become more kind of like detailed in students' minds as we go through the curriculum. So I think it's helped me because it's, to sum up, helped me because it helped me think about the way knowledge could be structured. Um, and also um, it's helped me think about, um, yeah, like what, what particularly we might want to focus on in, in certain curricula as well. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense, Sarah. And and as as you are talking then it was making me think about what was summarizing what you were saying is the way i heard it you're kind of talking about thinking about what are going to be the anchors that we have in our curriculum because we've talked a lot about the idea of learning as kind of anchoring knowledge to kind of concepts or ideas and the fact that Mm. learning is just connecting ideas so what i was hearing you say there was you know it's given you license and prompted you to think more about like what are the anchors that we're going to anchor all other learning in our curriculum too, but also how can we ensure that those anchors are, I'm going to use one of the words, subsumptive anchors, anchors mm. on, like that are big and sit at the top of the hierarchy of learning, learning mm. um, such that we can make sure all other knowledge kind of ties back mm. up the, the hierarchy towards it. Um, that's really, really interesting. And I think I think what Sam was trying to sort of say as well, and I think this is true of all subjects, of most subjects. I mean, I can't speak for all subjects, but for for most subjects, there isn't no, there isn't like one right answer for what these anchors should be. And actually, it's a conversation that you have within departments and phases. Like, what should they be? And that will pr- probably change over time as well. Um, you're just as your just kind of discussions unfold. So I think. Yeah, I don't think Azubel's trying to say there's there's one set set of concepts that you you kind of have to use, but it's that interesting conversation we have about like what what is it we want students to focus on, what is it we want students to learn. Hmm. Definitely, and and it's through those conversations of trying to work it out that we often clarify things for ourselves. And that was one really big thing that Sam was emphasising in that podcast. If you are going to take a concept based or concept led approach you really need to do the groundwork with teachers and kind of co-construct um, those subsumptive anchors or those big ideas or those transformative um, concepts uh, if you do want it to stick and if you want to do it really effectively. Yeah. Sarah, one term that gets kicked around in education a lot, I, I don't think I've ever found a concrete definition for it, uh, but it's definitely been kicked around, is, is the idea of constructivism. And my understanding of constructivism is basically, uh, this is what I've heard people like John Hattie say. Hattie says, you know, constructivism isn't a um, theory of teaching, it's a theory of learning. It's basically the idea that you need to build new knowledge on existing knowledge. And, you know, the learner has to kind of construct the meaning themselves because they're the only ones who can do so. To me, that sounds a lot like what you've been talking about so far in this podcast, what Elsie Bill's talked about as well. But yet, uh, in many of the, the circles that we run in in education, constructivism gets a pretty bad rap. So uh, please help me with a bit of integrative re- reconciliation here, Sarah. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think to be honest, Ollie, you 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 summed it up really, really well there. In the sense that, like, and and um, Paul Kirshner says this as well. Like, it's it 
constructivism is not a pedagogy like constructivism um it might be you know it, it's like a a way that kind of like knowledge is is formed and a lot it's not to kind of be tarred with like a, a particular brush because it's it's not about saying that the way the way that knowledge is is formed is not necessarily the way that we should teach so just because you know the learner has to um assimilate an idea with um another idea it doesn't mean that it should all be on them and we shouldn't provide any instruction for example so um it's what Azubel is quite clear about in his book right at the beginning um of, of um but when he's talking about this is that he is not a huge fan of discovery learning um he thinks that discovery learning can be meaningful in the sense that it can lead to a student connecting existing knowledge to new ideas but he doesn't think it is the most efficient way to teach and he talks about he calls it reception learning and that's the idea that the teacher is kind of the expert and is um supporting the students um to kind of connect um new ideas to existing knowledge probably what we he doesn't use the term kind of explicit instruction or anything like that but it's it's more the kind of teacher-led um approach um so what he is trying to say is like Yes, you know, we build on existing knowledge and it, it is constructivism, but it's that, that doesn't mean that you're letting students discover those things. We we kind of have built up this like um this knowledge um over time in our cultures and it's it's for us to disseminate um, most efficiently through um through this what he calls reception reception learning so yeah so he he doesn't think that that constructivism is a is a pedagogy and i think that's what um people like kirshner um like hattie have tried to sort of stress that makes a lot of sense so i'll, I'll try to summarize that you know the central tenet of constructivism that being that the learner is the ultimate person who needs to do the connection and the, and the learning is accurate but that does not mean that there's no role for the teacher and in fact we, there's a lot, a hell of a lot we can do to actually help them to make those meaningful connections. Yeah, I think like the majority of um, of those in, who cognitive scientists would um, agree that like students construct knowledge, they construct and reconstruct knowledge. And if you look at kind of neuroscience as well, it's all about how um, when we when we call to mind certain ideas and we activate certain ideas they um, are reconstructed by the learner and that and you know that that it gets consolidated into schemas for example so I don't think many people are disputing that that needs to happen for the learning we want to happen but that doesn't mean that we just allow students to kind of go off um, and, and try to discover things and do it all themselves. That's great Sarah I mean that's a great segue into the kind of few more practical um points that I, I, I was keen for us to discuss that come out of your book. So if we are, if there is a large role for teachers in kind of scaffolding assimilation, what are some of the things that we can do to support this? Yeah. So, um, so kind of where, where we've got to is we've got this understanding of like how important prior knowledge is existing knowledge in the minds of our students. So they've got this knowledge, um, 
And we want to teach them this new stuff and we want them to form these kind of new meanings. And if we've done our work with our departments, our phases, and we've sat down, we've worked out where we want these bodies of knowledge to go, we want where what we want students to understand, then um, our job is to really kind of, um, is to really support this process of assimilation to happen. And um, the way we can do that as teachers is um, we can, you know, first of all, make it really obvious to students what the links are between the new stuff we're teaching and the stuff they already know. Um, so obviously, as a first point of call, we need to sort of have a sense of what they already know. Um, and then we need to work out what, how what we're teaching links to, to that stuff. Um, and we need to be explicit about those links. And the reason we need to be explicit kind of comes back to research on experts and novices. And from that, we kind of, we know that, that novices, they don't perceive the same stuff um, as experts. So when, um, when you're listening to a teacher, a student with more of an understanding of the topic is actually going to take different things from what you're saying. Um, they're more likely to like latch on to the, the right narrative, the right things that you're, that you're talking about and grasp it. Whereas the students that don't might take away the odd idea, uh, or, and leave reasonably confused. So, the best thing we can do as teachers is to make it really obvious that this links to this thing you already know. Um, and so that, that, that kind of being explicit, um, is really important. The other thing we can do is we can try to anticipate, and we do this a lot anyway as teachers, but try to anticipate which concepts we're teaching that might get confused with one another. So, um, for example, um, if I'm teaching science and I'm teaching about um, osmosis and I might think that, that students are going to get confused between osmosis and what I've taught them before about diffusion because there's, there's some similarities there. So try to avoid that confusion um, by being upfront about the similarities and the differences between concepts. If I'm teaching RE um, and I'm teaching a new religion, it might be that I want to be upfront about the similarities and differences between the previous religion that we were, were looking at, just to be really clear so that those things don't become um, kind of interchangeable in students' minds. Um, and then thirdly, kind of um, avoiding like contradictions between related ideas. If there's if there's a kind of tension between two ideas, is to like call it out, uh, get students to explore it almost like upfront um, before it can then like lead to quite an embedded sort of um, contradiction. That's great, Sarah. So to, to recap, there three things we can do: make obvious links between related concepts and be really explicit about those links between what the new content we're teaching and what we expect students already know. Two, avoid confusion between related concepts by anticipating potential confusion and being upfront about similarities and differences. And thirdly, avoid contradictions between related concepts. Do you have an example of, of that third one in terms of avoiding contradictions between related concepts? Yeah, I think the, the example I gave could kind of work, um, I think, the um farm example like we've got this like in in students minds dogs are pets and then suddenly the dog is a, a working animal on a farm could could be seen as a contradiction um so you know how do we reconcile that 
Asibel talks about giving that higher order kind of um that kind of higher concept above it in english it could be a, a contradiction could be something like it, it is it, it, when we talk about contradiction we're talking about in students minds the contradiction so they they might have a kind of a, a particularly black and white um, idea about something so imagine they they kind of see a character as being like evil bad nasty and then we're trying to get them to see them as a more three-dimensional character later in later in the in the novel where they're actually doing something that's kind and it might come across as a bit of contradiction because students have built up this knowledge of them being this kind of evil character and it's like how do we get them to then kind of reconcile that well we might talk about this concept of 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 um people being three-dimensional and actually like are there you know do you ever do things that aren't particularly nice does that make you a bad person all the time you know so you're kind of um uh, resolving those contradictions but the key thing is is that you're trying to anticipate what might be in a kind of contradiction in in, in students minds and, and checking for that that's great so one one of the common elements of those kind of three things in terms of making obvious links between related concepts, avoiding confusion and avoiding contradictions is, is just anticipating. Try to think about, you know, what would students potentially struggle with here um, or what would they, what erroneous links may they make and how can I kind of circumvent that by being really explicit and laying it out for them. That's great. Yes. I think that um – something that just to come back again to what you said about similarities and differences we're thinking about how knowledge is structured in the minds of our students aren't we and we're thinking like oh those two ideas have got loads of overlap I can see students just completely interchanging those like convection radiation and conduction are they are they going to understand that they're different things are they going to understand what the differences are because actually it's it's really quite quite challenging we can anticipate that and so what we want to do is call out both those similarities and those differences multiple times, check that they understand them multiple times, because Azubel wants, wants us to preserve the links between them, i.e. the similarities, but also the distinction between them, the differences. That's great. And the, and the point of multiple times is important too, because often we do need multiple exposures for it to really stick. And uh, when there are two concepts that are really related there, there is almost like a pressure or a gravity pulling them together and trying to get them, what is it, subsumptive obliteration? Is that, was that the term? Yeah, I can't remember yeah. it's been a while now. <laughs> well um, done. <laughs> yeah, having them kind of drawn together and they, they kind of just, just merge. So we do need to uh, fight, the, fight the entropy in, in a way and kind of continue to push them apart with that, with revisiting it. Yeah. Uh, another term that you've mentioned a fair few times in this podcast so far is uh, – advanced organizer what are advanced organizers and how can teachers use them to to increase learning okay so just to be really clear it's advanced organizer with no d on the end because you 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 present them oh, in okay, advance right, thank you um i had a conversation with um paul kershner and he quite rightly told me um must call them advanced organizers and it makes a lot more sense when, when we call them that so um if you think about most theories most theories have kind of testable like aspects of them so the kind of testable aspect of um Azubel's theory or a testable aspect is um is this idea of, of advanced organizers so what Azubel's saying is like yes we've got we've got my theory about how learning happens and um 
Now, uh, like what we need to do is we need to kind of test this theory and the tool that I want to kind of test um, is this idea of an advanced organizer. So what he thinks is that when, you know, based on his theory, when students kind of come to our lessons, um, we need to prepare them cognitively for what they're about to learn. So um, a little tiny segue here. If we're not prepared cognitively for what we're about to learn, um, we could experience this thing like this sort of cognitive shock. We, we're, we're sitting in a lesson and, and suddenly the teacher's talking about something. I think we've all been here. We've all had this happen, maybe in a university lecture or something. But we're sitting down there and we're like, what on the, the hell is this person talking about? I don't understand what they are on about at all. And it might be that we're, we're slightly hungover from the night before or whatever it is. But we, we're sort of, we're just not on the same page as, as what this person is talking about. And it's really difficult to grasp anything that's going on if we're not kind of cognitively prepared for what we are about to learn. And when I was a teacher, my preparation for students was like giving them the title and the learning objective and like thinking, oh, well, now they're in the mindset of what, whatever this lesson's about. Um, and, and Ashley Bell's like, well, no. Um, we actually need to prepare them by kind of activating these subsumers that are going to be important to the lesson. So if you think about the lesson, the lesson is going into detail on a certain topic, be it like Pythagoras's theorem or, um, you know, the theme of love in, in a poem or whatever it is. It, the lesson's going to go into quite a lot of rich detail. And you want students to really grapple with that. Azubel says, well, first, you want to activate those important subsumers because what that's going to do is that's going to put them in the right kind of cognitive frame of mind to the right sort of lens through which to engage and understand all that detail. And it will help them to organize that detail under those organizing kind of anchoring subsumers. So if I'm, you know, if I'm going to um, teach about, uh, teach Romeo and Juliet, I might want to activate um, a kind of the idea of like destiny and fate um, so that, um, that when students are reading the prologue, they understand that like, you know, the audience and themselves as as the audience, um, I kind of already know that 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 Romeo and Juliet are destined to have something very tragic happen to them, and they understand this idea of destiny and why that was important. So, um, what that means for us as as teachers is that we need to decide, um, and we will have already hopefully decided when we're kind of thinking about curriculum planning, like what are those important subsumers. And then we need to construct something that helps students to kind of activate those in their minds. So the way we do this is, um, let's take this idea, let's take that example of destiny again. Um, we would think to ourselves, well, before we start reading the prologue, um, I want to activate this idea of destiny. What do my students already know about destiny? Um, they might, you know, I might think, oh, well, they already kind of know about star signs and things like that. So I could kind of tap into that idea um, and kind of bring to mind this idea that like um, there's this belief that, you know, if you're born in a certain 
time range, then these this will happen to you during the day. This is your kind of destiny for the day. Um, I could I kind of could start there because that links to their prior knowledge, and then like draw out this idea of destiny, and then start reading Romeo and Juliet and link into that. So sorry, I've said quite a lot there, Ollie. But just to summarise, like, and just to say that as you was saying, you know, you want to activate these. Um, subsuming concepts but you want to activate them in a way that is meaningful to the people in front of you the students in front of you so you have to think how could they understand destiny so I'm not going to just give a definition of destiny and then read Romeo and Juliet I'm going to really construct something be it verbally be it like a written paragraph a concept map whatever it is whatever lends itself best to helping them to actually activate their however naive it is their idea of destiny and then link it to Romeo and Juliet and that act either verbally written down graphically however we decide to make the advanced organizer that's the advanced organizer the thing that activates those subsuming concepts I'm sorry that was a really long (laughs) And, and for those who have listened to the Sam Gibbs episode which came before this one the, this will be sounding very familiar because when Sam talks about introducing a new concept, like the idea of uh, dystopia, she talked about, oh, first we would like talk about this TV show that was on about AI taking over the world and how it's creating a dystopian future and it kind of introduced the idea of dystopia and from there we'd say, okay, this relates to the, the, the book that we're now about to explore um, and so on. Something that I'm wondering about. So when I heard the phrase or when I when I hear others especially as well use a phrase advance or advanced, if they're like me and using the incorrect word, organizer, I usually think of like some sort of artifact. And and another kind of idea or artifact that um, could be confused with this one is and that sounds quite similar is the idea of a knowledge organizer. So can you help us to draw out some of the similarities and differences between these and you know is it a misconception to think that an an advanced organizer is an artifact or has an artifact representing it yeah i'll I'll take that that last question first then because i think that's that's a really good really good question it doesn't have to be an artifact in 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 the sense that it you know something you necessarily create before um it could just be a verbal explanation of destiny and then we kind of have a bit of a discussion about it and it doesn't have to be something that's written down it could be a written passage it could be a a kind of concept map that we then discuss it could be a graphic of some sort um that you know that it depends what you're trying to get across as to what would be most appropriate to show students so if i'm i don't know if i'm um, a psychology teacher and I'm wanting to go into like a lot of detail about um, about memory in my in my lesson. I'm uh, I might show a kind of graphic um, about memory that kind of links to something we've learned before as the advanced organizers. So they've got this kind of idea of memory first before we go into the detail, and a graphic might be the best thing. But for me as an English teacher, it it just may make sense for me to discuss destiny, or I might bring in some horoscope type stuff if I want to remind them what I mean by horoscopes. So I might bring in something to support that explanation. The key thing is not necessarily what you bring in or what you prepare. It's 
that it's, you know, it works best with the content and that it helps to bridge from what students existing knowledge to the kind of the new con the concept the subhuman concept um so it yeah just in short doesn't have to be an artifact it just has to work best with the content <laughs> um so your your other question was about knowledge organizers so knowledge organizers are not generally speaking advanced organizers and the difference is that a knowledge organizer is pitched at the same level as the knowledge you're teaching in the lesson it's the detail it's the definition of all the words that you want them to learn it's you know wh whatever it is that you want to put on there but um it's more kind of like i suppose as you might say it's more sort of a summary and a summary is not an advanced organizer. Think about the hierarchy of knowledge that we've been talking about. Um, an advanced organizer is aimed at that, at that top level of subsumptive concepts. So, you know, tragedy or democracy or whatever it is. It's not summarizing the lesson. It's not summarizing what happens in act one, scene one. It's giving you a concept or lens through which to view act one, scene one. Whereas a knowledge organizer is more of a summary. It's more of like, here are the key things from act one, scene one that you need to remember. So it's a different level of the hierarchy. So knowledge orga organizer is not the same as an advanced organizer. And in the book, um, I try to make it really clear what the difference between a summary and an advanced organizer is. Thanks, Sarah. And so if I'm thinking about that, I'm kind of imagining a hierarchy which kind of ends up looking a bit like a triangle or a pyramid of knowledge. And so the advanced organizer is like basically essentially an arrow pointing to the top before the learning happens and says, this is where, this is the pyramid we're looking at, or this is the, this is the big idea that sits at the top of the hierarchy we're looking at. That's an advanced organizer. A knowledge organizer, it sounds like it's almost like a snapshot of like one of the lower levels saying, you know, now that we know we're talking about this higher level, here's, here's all the detail that we can kind of fill in and furnish the bottom of the pyramid of triangle with. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, it might be that an advanced organizer touches on that higher level as well and gives a kind of summary of that higher level, but it's also pitched at that lower level. Whereas Azure is clear that an advanced organizer doesn't touch on the detail of the lesson. It's, um, or learning episode, I think we should probably say, it's actually about activating that more subsumptive idea. Um, and what research on advanced organizers has sort of shown us in more modern times, the more modern kind of research, is that actually what researchers think is happening when you use advanced organizers is it's creating this kind of um, what they call a proto schema. So a kind of a first schema, um, a sort of temporary scaffold through which to sort of see the detail and capture the detail it's like a lens through which to see the detail in the lesson and it, it, if you think about what a lens does a lens kind of focuses on you on certain things and um you know i go back to english again where there's so much you can take from every scene in a play or every you know page of a, of a novel actually what these advanced organizers are doing is creating this schema this lens through which to see this stuff such that you can focus on particularly important ideas that the teacher wants you to, to kind of focus on 
Mm, that's really good. It kind of, um, yeah, it kind of foreshadows what's going to be relevant from all the things. It's, it's kind of like an attention, um, something that supports attention as well because there's all these things in the environment. I'm thinking of that Cavigliola image of like the environment and there's all these dots in it. There's all those things that students could be paying attention to, but the advanced organiser says, today, for the purpose of this learning, this is the kind of region we're looking at. Or when you see all these items, you're going to know they're relevant because they're going to relate back to this bigger idea. That's that's really helpful. Yeah. Cool. Activate the subsumers. Um, Self-explanations and concept mapping, Sarah. This is another another area. So in terms of – actually, no. I'm still I still don't understand why it's advanced not advanced because it's in advance of something it's in advance of the detail and that would be adva- if advanced if you're advanced it means you're like ahead of someone but it's not you're not saying it's not saying you're kind of better it's not a better organizer it's advances in in advance of the learning if that makes sense mm. got it yeah that's interesting. I mean, even though I was calling them advanced organisers, in my mind that meant like the organiser is used at an like it's it, it's advanced within the learning process, like move forwards within it. So, oh, see. even though I was using the wrong word, I think it, it was never yeah, unclear right to me that the idea was like it was using it being used at the start. So it would be interesting to find out if that was confusing people. But I, I definitely understand that it, it is l- more clear if we call it advanced than advanced. Um, yeah, and, and it's funny because like, when, you, when you actually say the word, it, they, don't, they don't sound that different, <laughs> different, do they, advanced and advanced? No. no. Thank you. Thank you for helping me understand that important point. So self-explanation and concept mappings, um, mm. Sarah, in terms of kind of concrete, actionable things teachers can do, advanced organizer are one. And two others that you really uh, kind of sketch out a self-explanation and concept mapping. Can you take us through these a little bit? Yeah, and I think what's really important is just everything that we're doing is like linking it back to the theory. So advanced organisers links back because it's cognitively preparing students for the detail by activating those subsumers, and that fits perfectly with what Asubel is saying. Now, Asubel didn't talk about self-explanation and concept mapping, but they, in my opinion, they link um, well to what his to his theory. And the reason is because I think as teachers, from what I've seen, my own teaching and others, is that we're quite guilty of thinking because I've taught it, they've learned it, or they should have learned it. It should have stuck because I did tell them. We t- covered it last lesson. I can't, you know, I like a pound for every time I said to students, "We've done this already," you know, and like in a sort of exasperated tone. But actually what Ajibo is saying to us, and it comes back to that constructivism point, is that learning happens in the minds of our students and not in the words of the teacher. So we can only do so much um, to sort of enable that learning process. It has to actually happen in our students' minds. So I can deliver what I consider to be a gold star explanation of a particular concept where I link to their prior knowledge that I know that they have and I, you know, I'm really convinced that they've that they've made those links. But I can never know that they've made those links because I can't see inside their minds and actually like see see what's happening. Um and even if I could be technology would never probably allow us to do that or not not for a long time. So um 
what I need to do is give them tasks that kind of force them to make those links for want of a better word. Um, so self-explanation, which has some nice kind of evidence behind it as being like a good way to tie together the new ideas that you have been taught with your existing knowledge. Um, so you, um, you, you might as a teacher kind of give students a little bit of time after your explanation to answer some questions which tie together their previous knowledge and the new idea that you're teaching. Um, and that could just be in written form or they could discuss it. And then you can kind of go around, do your, do your assessment for learning, sort of listen in to see kind of what they're grasping, um, see what they've written down, to see what links they've made. And I keep saying this word links. So, you know, it's possible that actually a concept map could be a good way of doing that as well. Um, just to say as a bit of a caveat, to get students to do concept maps well is really hard. Um, it takes a lot of kind of training. Even those people who are big on concept maps, the researchers, fully admit that you need to really support students to understand what a concept map is and how to do it well um so if you wanted to do concept mapping with students it'd be like a bit of a longer term endeavor i think but essentially what you're what what you could end up with is a class that kind of quite used to drawing out their ideas and the links between them and writing what the links are and that's quite a nice visual way uh, for them but also for you as a teacher to go around and go oh well that person has not understood the relationship between these two ideas at all or that person's made some links that I didn't even think of you know so it's actually quite a, a good from from an assessment for learning perspective as well um because it's quite visual so both of those ways of, of kind of doing it self-explanation concept mapping the idea is that we're actually getting students to, to make the links themselves and not assuming that just because we said it they've learned it that's great and um, the two thing two things i took out of that is one with both self-explanation and concept mapping one we are ensuring that links are actually being made to prior knowledge um and two we are forcing students to externalize those links which means that a teacher can actually check them which is absolutely impossible if it's just happening um internally in in, in their minds i have a question about concept mapping you said it's a kind of a um longer term endeavor potentially one thing I've found particularly challenging with concept mapping is checking the student's work. I mean, this this might not be as demanding for a, an a English teacher because an, an English teacher's counterfactual is checking an essay, and that's a very time-consuming kind of endeavour. But for a maths teacher, the counterfactual is check, checking a maths test, and that's not a very particularly time-consuming endeavour. But, but for me, and I've, I've used this in physics, and I've set assignments of students to construct concept maps in different areas of physics in year 11 and 12, and then I get to marking them and I go, oh, my goodness, this is massive. I've, I've got to, like, follow every little link that the students have made and check them all to make sure they're all sensical and so on. Do you have any um, – I've actually just come up with some, with some ideas over the last two minutes or so that might work. But do you have any um, suggestions for listeners about how to make it more time efficient to actually check uh, these these students' con concept maps? Yeah, definitely. Um, and – yeah, I can I can absolutely see see what you mean when when you say that. Um I think using them as a very very formative kind of task is probably the best thing not to sort of see them as like a summative way of assessing knowledge because I don't think 
I think what we're trying to say about when we use concept maps is that there are different ways of representing the knowledge. There's not one right way. So I think it would be very difficult to like assess it in a, in a more summative sense, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong there. Um, and I know that there are some people who are, who are kind of working on that and trying to do that. Um, so one thing I would say is like when you're when you're teaching students to concept map, get them to do it in the same way. So teach them how to concept map. And a good way um, that's that's generally agreed on for doing concept maps is um, the way that um, a, a scholar called uh, Novak, who has um, worked a lot with Azubel, um, kind of put forward the idea of concept maps, which is that we structure them in a hierarchy. So if you think about what, what Azubel's talked about with knowledge being kind of hierarchical, that would work. So we structure them in a hierarchy where we can. Um, we link between concepts using an arrow to show the direction of the relationship. And we write linking words on that arrow to show our understanding of how those two ideas link together. And you can imagine how many times you'd have to show students like examples of this for them to understand how to do it. Um, and it would take time for them to kind of grasp and for some students they'll be too young to be able to to do things like that but we can make it easier by limiting the um the variables and providing constraints for students so what we could do is we could provide them with all of the concepts in a bank and ask them to then or like arrange those concepts so that would like constrain things we could give them a few blank ones for them to add in some others that you might not have thought of um you can give them half the concept map and ask them to put in the rest um you can give them some linking some of the linking terms and ask them to put in some of the concepts so you can do it in various kind of scaffolded ways um but i'm keen to hear which ones you kind of thought of ollie as well in the last couple of minutes yeah exactly. i mean one of the ones i was thinking of is basically what you were saying then which is around constraints and i was thinking of doug lemon's idea of um standardize the format so basically not getting students to do sketching on a blank page, but it's, you could you could actually give them a map with all the concepts and then just provide space to write linking words and then you just have to check the linking words and you can easily skim it because it's always in the same spot. Or similarly, you could have some linking words, some concepts, and they have to fill in some of the concepts, some of the linking words, again, quite, quite quick. And a good scaffold, especially in the early stages of learning um, so that students don't get kind of overwhelmed by the idea of mapping out everything they know about a topic. And another idea is I was thinking of potentially getting, like pairing students up and say, read each other's concept map and see if there's something about your partner's concept map that you disagree with and then have a discussion about it. Um, and then perhaps, you know, you do some sort of whole class feedback where you say, can you bring, can, you know, can you bring forward the number one biggest debate you had in your, in your group and you have a discussion of the whole class because the kind of disagreements they have or the, the misconceptions that come up, they're probably misconceptions that more than one student is going to have. Um, yeah. So that would be interesting. And I was wondering if you could do like a two, two students get together, debate, and then that pair then takes their kind of integrated or consolidated concept map to another pair and kind of has, has another discussion. And then that kind of um, go, moves up until the whole class basically presents the teacher a consolidated concept map and the teacher can then say yes this is accurate or no so it's a it's a way of kind of checking everyone's work but only checking it once um i don't know it's just an idea yeah yeah i think that sounds good and you you kind of you're getting out there 
through the concept map you're kind of getting out there the the way their knowledge that the way the way they perceive you know how their knowledge is structured and the multiple ways they see that ideas link together or don't see the links between ideas which is i think even like comes back to Ashville's idea of compartmentalization where do they not where do some students or all students not see the links and you think you've made them but they actually haven't made those links as well so it's that yeah i think it's it could be a good way of seeing how their knowledge is structured fantastic so one of the one of the other ideas that i found really interesting in your book sarah is the idea of that we should check for meaning not just check for understanding so for example here's, here's a little excerpt you say be wary of verbatim responses and design questions that probe how meaningful ideas have been made and probe how meaningful ideas have been made by students. This can be achieved by asking questions that require students to show if they can relate a new idea to existing knowledge and how clearly they can do so. So yeah, just this idea of checking for understanding is often not enough. Um, and we actually need to check for meaning. Can you expand upon why checking for understanding often isn't enough and how teachers can practically check for meaning? Yeah. Um, so this, again, was not something that, as Yubel said, this is my kind of extrapolation from from what he's saying. So I think that what Yubel's theory is giving us is an understanding um, from his perspective of how learning happens. And I think that there is some good evidence. You know, I don't think this theory is perfect. Other theories definitely exist. But I think there is some good evidence for um, much of what Azubel is saying. Um, and with it, as teachers, we need to kind of arm ourselves with our knowledge of how students learn. And with that understanding um, that making meaning is important, that we make meaning through assimilation. And that means to connect prior knowledge to existing knowledge. Um, we need to take that understanding as professionals and employ that when we are kind of teaching and especially when we are listening to students answers or reading students answers however we're capturing what they're saying so I've kind of characterized checking for understanding as um, a student giving you an answer or class giving you an answer however you're doing it and you're thinking like does this reach a particular benchmark of what I'd consider un them understanding it correctly um, yes or no or kind of yes but no kind of you know a little bit imperfect um, and there's no real thought there um, when I was doing it at least um, of, of the learning process in this I wasn't thinking about how meaningful have they made what I've said um, I was I was just thinking like is it's kind of a dichotomy is it is it have they understood have they not understood um, or not understood enough um, so what I'm saying is there's a difference between checking for understanding where you're just kind of going, have they understood, have they not understood, um, versus checking for meaning, which, where I ask myself the question, how meaningful, how meaningful has, has this student made what I've said? And that means kind of taking us back to at the beginning of the book, we look at meaning being um, on a continuum. And we talked about this already, where we can make things more or, le or less meaningful depending on how many connections we make. So if a student gives us an answer, um, then and we're, and we're checking for meaning, we're curious, we're asking the, ourselves the question, given what they've said, how meaningful have they made 
this concept that I've taught them, for example. And if I don't know, then I need to ask them more questions or ask the class more questions to kind of get uh, a little bit more out of them. And that's where this idea of a verbatim response comes in. So if um, students are just parroting back to me verbatim what I've already said, they're obviously saying the correct thing because they're saying what I said. But Azibel would say alarm bells should be ringing here because when, the, when, when students make meaning, they connect what you say to their existing knowledge and everyone's existing knowledge is at least slightly different. So the new meaning they make will be at least slightly different from what you've said. So if they're just saying the exact words that you said, have they made that connection? Have they made it meaningful? Therefore, I probably want to ask some more probing questions to check that they have actually started to assimilate the idea with their existing knowledge. So the check for understanding, traditionally one of the powers of it is that you can check the, check the understanding of multiple students at the same time. Like you can do mini whiteboards, you can do coral response, and in all cases you're looking for kind of the same answer and that makes it very quick and easy for the teacher to uh, sample all responses and get a really good uh, gauge of the, the understanding of the whole class. It sounds like this checking for meaning idea is a little bit more in-depth and requires a bit more of a kind of Socratic back and forth between a teacher and student potentially. Do you have some kind of like like am I right? Is it more of a dis- is it is a checking for meaning more of a discussion? And if so, does that mean we can only do it for a couple of students at a time, or are there actual ways to do kind of whole class check for meaning? Yeah, it's a really good question, and like nothing is particularly useful unless it's unless it's practical for for teachers to do. I think. Um. So it. It might so in the first instance, checking for meaning leads us to potentially ask slightly different questions in the first in the in the in the first case. So instead of asking maybe um a question that I have given the answer to earlier in the lesson, I might ask a slightly different version of that question such that they don't it doesn't trigger that kind of parroted verbatim response it might also make me think about giving students time with which to process their answer so uh, Doug Lamov gives us some good um, ways of doing this like using everybody writes so I'll ask a question and then give everyone time to write and then kind of like yeah maybe call on a few people or maybe I can circulate and I can see more people's responses before I call on a few people um, but that gives them a chance to sort of make the connections um, while they're writing uh, or maybe it might trigger me to use think pair share a little bit more because I'm actually wanting a more kind of meaningful uh, response um, I think another kind of thing that it might do um, which I could kind of I could get whole class um, a whole class doing is um, let's say I'm you know a maths teacher and I want I'm really used to using mini whiteboards and um my you know i'm like oh i'm not going to go into loads of deep questions with one student i want to see what everybody says and i ask them a question and they answer the question they show me their whiteboards and i actually i want a bit of a to check for meaning a bit more so i want a bit of a like deeper response um i might kind of get my students into the habit of um kind of 
writing down what they did in their own words on the back of the whiteboard such that I can see everybody's the sea of responses and I can get a few students to flip their whiteboards around so I get that like deeper response as well um so it just might trigger me to kind of think how am I checking more for meaning so like the connections they've made rather than just the surface like can they do this particular skill does that sound plausible <laughs> I, I'm, I think I'm starting to get there, and I think I think this would be something for a lot of teachers to kind of experiment with. Because I mean, one of the great things about checking for understanding and kind of explicit direct instruction, like highly scaffolded uh, forms of instruction, is that you can get a really high success rate, and you can have you can kind of take a whole group of students along with you and help them have all have a sense of success with their learning and things like that it seems like a lot of what we've been talking about is more of a more of a i guess i guess a paced way of teaching more of more of a way of teaching where you are giving students more time to think make connections test those connections discuss ideas and things like that and i think it's incredibly valuable and important and i think and i also think for a lot of teachers and perhaps for some teachers, this is what they're already doing. But for I think for a lot of teachers, this will take a bit of time to think, okay, how could I potentially integrate some elements of this into my own teaching, um, perhaps towards the end of a teaching sequence to really dive a little bit deeper and make sure the connections that have been made are robust and solid ones or, so, or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good, really good sort of push there. It's, it's, and I think I think what Angie Bell would say is that it's a bit of a um what's the word? It's a bit of a like you you kind of you think you're making a saving in time, but you're essentially not if you're not doing some of this stuff, like the self explanation, um, for example. So if you're if you're teaching and then you're giving them something to do and there's not that middle processing part that meaningful processing is what I've called it, where they're doing that, 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 those links themselves. Yes, we might get some immediate performance or we might not, but we might get some immediate performance, but is that going to be long lasting or are we going to see more of a uh, kind of longer, longer lasting kind of learning if we actually factor in that, that time for self-explanation as well for those making of connections? And will we avoid potentially some confusion, compartmentalization, contradiction, if we provide that that kind of time as well. I think that's what he would say. But we've also got to recognize that what he's also saying is identify your important subsumers up front so that you're not teaching everything that you, you know, and I, st- I know still the curricula are packed, absolutely packed. But he's saying like, you know, you know, identify the important ideas first because I think implicitly he also recognizes that it would just take way too long. Um, to kind of teach in this way unless you were focused on the right things so i give a kind of concrete example of that from my own teaching um i'm a big big advocate of retrieval and um, retrieval practice um because of its benefits on on, on memory and, and kind of long-term learning and um i like would think about retrieval as in like oh randomly what kind of like what are the, what are the things we talked about last lesson okay then, then they should retrieve them but actually what Azubel causes us to think about is like actually no the important things to retrieve are the ones that are linked to the details that are linked to the subsumers Everything else, 
is nice. Could be could be nice kind of could be hinterland. Could be stuff that's like important to hold that stuff together. But they don't need to remember it in nine months' time. So you know, I'm not going to focus necessarily on that. The other thing I should say with um with with um checking for meaning is that I think that it helps a bit with when students it could help with when students say the wrong answer or something that's not an acceptable what I've said is like not something that's not in the acceptable range of meaning. Instead of going like, no, that's wrong, here's the right answer, or no, that's wrong, Johnny, what's the right answer? Okay, Sally, repeat it, however you want, however you do it. What you're asking yourself is like they've given me an answer it's the wrong answer what what faulty existing knowledge have they used to kind of create that wrong answer can can i tell and how can i help them to use better existing knowledge to understand the new idea so the example i give in in the book is similar to the one i've talked about earlier in terms of um romeo and juliet so they in the prologue they're called star-crossed lovers and um you know, if a student thinks that the word crossed, star-crossed lovers means that the lovers are cross with one another, angry with one another, they've obviously misunderstood the quote. But but I can see that where they might have got that idea from, because we've also been talking about the families, the Capulets and the Montagues feuding with one another. So they've activated this idea of anger and feuding, and they've connected this idea of crossed probably with that, with that um, idea. So what I can say is like, no, it's not about them being cross with each other. That's the families feuding. We're talking about the lovers here. Do you remember when we talked about destiny? Well, star-crossed links to that idea of destiny. So what I'm trying to do with the student is to almost take apart and rebuild this um, body of knowledge in a way that's that's kind of um, more appropriate. It's interesting you, you say that because some of the some of my favorite teaching that I've done and some of my favorite teaching when I was as a student has been in physics classes when basically the, the lecturer and one particular student have some like extended dialogue trying to deconstruct like an idea. And like this would often happen in, in my physics classes when a student would say something, I'd say, it's not quite, actually often I wouldn't say that's not right. I'd say like, how do you know? basically just say how do you know why is that and just keep on asking how do you know to the student would say and you'd end up getting down to the point where it's like oh okay that's where the misconception's coming from and then you can say okay that's really interesting and i think the teacher you know framing it as the misconception as being interesting is a really powerful kind of tool here that's really interesting so you're saying that blah 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 you know that's not actually the case because blah, blah, blah. And we, we know that's not the case because it's the other thing we know. Remember, you told me last lesson that X, Y, Z, that means that this can't be the case and which means that da, 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 da. So we must actually be here instead. That, that's like oh, so much fun when you do have a discussion with a student like that. Um, and it's really powerful, but it also does take a t- type of a culture in the classroom and a willingness of the student to artic- really articulate their thinking. And in fact, I think that's that's kind of where students learn how to think through those kinds of conversations. Um, so I guess this is a vote, vote of confidence in this idea of checking for meaning and a, and a hope that um, we can, you know, more of it can ha- go on in classrooms. Yeah, I really like that. That's, um, I can see how that would be really powerful um, and, and definitely see how you would need a particular culture in order to do it and probably model it quite a few times. You know, I, I thought this and this came from this 
naive kind of idea that I had and that's totally fine and understandable but now I understand this this and this yeah and I think the process that you just described fits quite well with um actually what researchers suggest is a really good approach for addressing misconceptions as well to like figure out where the misconception comes from but to really quickly counter it and stress the kind of right way of thinking um to try to kind of yeah counter counter that misconception so yeah that makes sense Mm. and i mean diving deep like that takes effort takes cognitive effort and that's that's a link to another idea that you talk about in the book which is the idea of cognitive drive as a key ingredient for learning sarah can you tell us a bit about cognitive drive yeah, so um, Ashley talks about this, uh, not in not in tons and tons of detail, but he he talks about cognitive drivers being like the desire to learn knowledge as an as an end in itself. Um, so like you know, knowledge for knowledge's sake. What what some people might talk about is like intrinsic motivation to learn. Um, and you know, research tells us that it's not about like intrinsic good, extrinsic bad. So like giving rewards and stuff is bad, or you know that that's not the case. And often like at different points in the learning process, um, you know, either, like extrinsic can be really useful. Um, we have to be obviously very careful how we how we use that. Um, but as you've talked about the kind of goal being about this desire to learn knowledge as an end in itself, and that like learning meaningfully, he talks about it, it requires a real commitment on the part of the learner so if you've got students that are used to like turning up to school kind of being told like what they need to do and really carefully scaffold everything's really carefully scaffolded and that scaffold is never removed and you know they're always always supporting everything they do they might not get the feeling that they need to exert cognitive effort in order to learn they might feel like it is the responsibility mainly of the teacher to teach me um and that you know as long as I sit there and you know look vaguely interested I will take it all in and as we've seen through this theory that is not the case there is so much that the student needs to do cognitively to learn they need to understand how the new how the new idea fits with what they already know they need to work to integrate that idea with what they already know and all the connections the similarities and differences we talked about um we'll talk in a, in a minute probably about what they need to do to keep that learning going and f- stop forgetting from happening such as like revisiting um and retrieving um the learning so it's a real commitment on their part and what that leads me to kind of um think about is you know, the importance of students understanding this learning process and understanding their role within the learning process. And we can tell students, um, we, we can give them the knowledge um, about how to, how people learn. And, and you know, we can talk, talk about Azubel's theory of meaningful learning, probably not using any of the terms that we've discussed today in a much more digestible way, which hopefully I've done in the book. Um, so we can give them that knowledge of how people learn. But um, there's also a kind of a framework which I find particularly useful um, by um, Daniel and Einstein, which hasn't yet been tested, but I think will will be tested. I don't think it's yet been tested. Maybe you know uh, more than me about that, Ollie. But I have actually tested it. You have? Oh, okay, yes, great. Do you I'm want to talk about PhD. this thing? No, no, you, you, you do it. 
Oh, come on. You no, you should talk about this. You, you know more about okay. it. Okay. So, I mean, the framework is not basically it's insufficient to give students knowledge to get them to use self-regulated learning strategies. They also have to have belief in this strategy, commitment to using this strategy, and they also have to plan to use it. And so the way that I often talk about it is students often, you know, knowledge is knowledge is knowledge to student. You have to kind of teach them. I mean, sometimes we do this too shallow, shallowly as well, but we need to teach students not only the strategy, but also when to use it. Um, you know, th- that's the kind of conditional knowledge about it. What kind of cues should they look for to know that this strategy is appropriate? How should they use it? So that's using giving them worked examples and things like that. And also teach them why it works. That's the idea of kind of conveying to them mechanisms and things like that um, so that they don't modify the strategy in a way that renders it uh, ineffectual. Uh, but we also need to give them belief. So the idea of belief here is that often students, when they hear about a strategy, they they think, oh, okay, that's interesting, that works for other people, but it doesn't work for me. And so we need to actually do something which convince them, convinces them, oh, actually that does work for me. And so one of the key way, ways we can do that is through a thing called a participatory demonstration, uh, which is basically you get them to try to do some, a task that's hard and they don't have the skills to do yet, so they struggle with it. You then teach them this new strategy. You then get them to do the task again, and then you get them to reflect upon how much easier it was using the strategy. And the idea of that is at the end they go, oh, actually, yeah, that does work for me. So you've got the knowledge, then you've got the belief, then you've got to build the commitment. Now, the danger after a belief is that the students go, okay, well, that does work for me. However, that was a lot of effort, so I can't really be bothered. Right? So you need to take them to the next level and say, okay, why is it actually important for you to be able to do this thing better? And so there's multiple ways you can do that. You can use like videos of people who they look up to as like role models. You can get them to, um, you know, which is called role model, role model narratives. Um, you can do get them to reflect upon what they want to achieve in future and think about how this might be a stepping stone to that uh, and things like that. And hopefully after that, they'll go, I know how to do, use this strategy. I believe it can work for me. Uh, and also, I think putting in the effort is worth it. But then often they go, putting in the effort's worth it, and they stop there and they just never use it. So you, then you need to do planning. So, okay, so you know how to do this now. You believe it's going to work for you. You think it's important for you to do it. How, like when exactly and where exactly are you going to use this? And you're getting to make a concrete plan. So that's the the, the McDaniel and, and Einstein knowledge, belief, commitment, planning framework. Yeah. And what have you found anything yet interesting? Oh yeah, we did an experiment. So we did an experiment. This isn't a <laughs> podcast about my my stuff. Oh no! Um, yeah. Yeah. So we we did an experiment with about 120 year eight students, and we taught them how to learn in self regulated ways from worked examples. So you know, students get stuck on a question mm-hmm. at home. What do they do? Well, a lot of them go, I don't know how to do this, and they shut their book and they walk away. But how, however, mm-hmm. in their maths textbook, there's usually a worked example or even a number of worked examples that show them how to do that question. So all they have to do really is go in, read the example, maybe cover up the answer and try the example themselves, check if they got it right, um, and then have another go at the, the, the related question and see if they can do it now. It's a pretty mm-hmm. simple process, but we basically taught we taught all the students the process, and for half of the students, we gave them the belief, commitment, and planning training as well, and for half we mm-hmm. didn't, and we found significant changes in both their ability to use uh, the approach and subsequent scores in in a school-based test. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I found that pretty encouraging. And from a common sense point of view, it kind of makes sense as well. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, so yeah, some and and I'm working on the paper now, but I just haven't found any time to do the revisions <laughs> from the feedback from my PhD supervisor. So uh, coming down the line at some point, but I don't know when yet. And will you follow? I mean, sorry, it's a bit of maybe an unfair question. Will you follow up to see if it's had a longer term effect on them, or have you already? Is it already over quite a long, a long term? No, I don't anticipate following up. I mean, yeah, that would be a good thing to do. I mean, it has it has had it had an impact in that my school's now like, wow, this is a really worthwhile thing to teach students. Let's mm. let's do it again across all year levels from. Seven to seven to ten, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, but no, no, no formal follow up. But but we are testing it in a couple of other contexts. So one of the things we're going to do next year is we're teaching students a way to organise their folders on their computer, and oh, okay. we're going to do that, train them remotely, and then give half them the belief commitment planning components and half not. And we might actually swap out some of the belief commitment components to see if any of them, like swapping out one in isolation. Mm. Um, you know, has has an impact or something like that. Uh, so yeah, but so yeah, there are follow up experiments coming down the line too. Cool, that sounds good. Yeah, so that's that's. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm really Back glad that you tested that. Yeah, but that, but that that that's the kind of that's the framework I found useful for thinking about this. Yeah, I think. Um, and it's amazing that uh, and fortuitous that you've tested that and found that it. <laughs> does seem to have an effect as well so yeah i think think the the kind of the kind of key message that um ajabel was trying to get across is like this has like it takes it takes commitment and it takes it takes motivation and he he makes the the point which a lot of people make um when they talk about motivation which is you don't have like you don't have to start with mot- motivated learners. You don't have to like do some other thing to make them motivated before you start the learning. And actually, like learning can generate motivation. So it's not not to kind of mm. think of it in in a particular order. Yeah, a reciprocal relationship. Uh, I mean, that's mm. interesting. So the knowledge, belief, commitment, plan- planning framework, I think, is a really powerful one because it can get students to use these strategies some students use these strategies a bit more but there's also mm. this core idea of cognitive drive which at the s- start of um your, your response to that question you said is like an interest in knowledge for knowledge knowledge's sake yeah right um, which i think is actually kind of the key for creating people or for for finding or having people who actually do the kind of work that you've done to like go through Bell's work and really dissect it and try to translate they've done the real cognitive effort um and and taking that load to translate it into more uh, digestible term terms for other people a lot of people don't have the drive to do that and don't find that to be an intrinsically rewarding or enjoyable experience do you think there's anything that teachers can do Mm. to help cultivate students cognitive drive or do you think it's more of a kind of intrinsic god-given thing that some people have and some people don't really have and they probably never will yeah so i guess i don't know is the answer um but my best guess would be most things we do are sort of and when you say god-given i guess it's like genetic is sort of 
what what I take from that. And I guess m- most from studying genetics a little bit at university for my master's, most things that we do, most behaviors are sort of 50, around 50% genetic, 50% environment. And then there's loads of interactions between that. So there might be, and, and, and we know that most things are kind of domain specific. So we could be particularly motivated to, um, you know, um, go and play football, um, which is, you know, brilliant, uh, in some circumstances and then particularly motivated to, um, to learn this particular concept in maths, um, or not. So like, it depends on the domain, um, and it pr- probably is some element of genetics kind of in there, but I think there's enough environment that we can probably support as teachers um students to be motivated to do things and you know without you know i'm not definitely not an expert on motivation and and would recommend um peps's book on on motivation as as being a really good kind of digestible thing but you know one part of that is is success and you talked about um success uh, earlier on when you're talking about sort of um getting that high success rate that could be very motivating um taking like really small steps uh, i'm not kind of overwhelming students um at first can be really good um so i think we can build towards this idea of cognitive drive in certain domains in the domains that we teach um and i don't think anyone's kind of past the point of being um kind of excited to kind of learn something on a very anecdotal level i have never i've not met and i've worked with some like students that people would call challenging um i have never ever ever met a student that was not pleased when they learned something you know whether they hid it reasonably well but it came out in a little like twitch of a smile i've never met a student who have has not been happy and proud of themselves for learning something um so I think from that, I take that, that there, we can foster this idea of cognitive drive, but we shouldn't see it as a blanket thing. Um, every new thing we teach, we might have to foster it all over again, you know, because it is probably domain specific. But I don't think there's any students that are beyond the point of uh, being able to kind of enjoy learning for learning's sake. And then we hear like a lot of people saying, you know, oh, what a job's going to be like in the future? You know, we, we, we're teaching them this thing now, but are they going to need it in a year's time, two years time, 10 years time? And actually, I think that people have come to the consensus that the best thing we can do is, is like give people the confidence that when they kind of really try at stuff, um, they can learn it. Um, and actually learning is interesting and fun and, and, and rewarding. So I think it is kind of basically our job for creating people who creating, supporting people, supporting students to kind of be those kind of citizens of the future, I suppose. Hmm. That's a really good point, Sarah. And I think your point about you've never met a student who didn't have some sense of enjoyment when they learned something is a really powerful one. And perhaps if we focus more on more meaningful learning, students would find it even more rewarding. And I think that that's probably the case. This is what Azubel says. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Ali, because I was about to not say that. But he, he, you know, quite, <laughs> he would say that because he cre- created the theory. But he thinks if they learn meaningfully, everything else becomes easier to, to learn um, because you go into your next lesson remembering the ideas from the previous lesson so that you can build upon it. That idea that knowledge is is like Velcro and, you know, knowledge begets knowledge. So, you know, because he says, because when we learn meaningfully, it sticks around longer, we can use it to learn more stuff 
and then we're sort of starting them on this virtuous cycle um, of learning and that builds that kind of cognitive drive. Mm. And maybe the meaningful learning is in many ways the, the linchpin. Like I've often said that, you know, the difference between students who are successful and those who are less successful is basically the way they approach learning and the way they approach meaning making and their ability to be like, I don't understand this yet. I need to go a bit deeper because I've noticed a contradiction. I need to like actually unpack that and reconcile this. Whereas students who are less successful will go like, oh, okay, that's a new idea. Write it down. Say it in my head a few times. I've learned that. Move on. They're not actually doing the integration. And, you know, I would, uh, it would be my hypothesis that the first student who is doing the meaningful learning is just finding that much more enjoyable and engaging and, and motivating. And the second one is just, seeing it as like a mindless kind of conveyor belt of bricks of information that they're kind of building up something potentially, but it's not very coherent. Um, So maybe this meaningful learning is some sort of a linchpin there where if we can emphasize it more and scaffold it more within students, then they do all become better learners and they do all find it, you know, more intrinsically rewarding and we have better students and better learners as an outcome. Yes, I mean, I, I I agree with you, and Ajibel would certainly agree with you. Um, and I think like part of that is this like expectation that they sh- that they 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 expect that learning isn't going to be easy. They expect that if they've taken on board something easily, it's probably not learned that well. If they think they've taken it on board easily, and Daniel Willingham talks about like the danger of like familiarity, and I'm really interested in this. Like the idea that like when, when we read through something, if the ideas are sort of semi-familiar to us, we almost trick ourselves into thinking we know it. And then, you know, if we have an exam on it or if we try to recall it in a few weeks time, we can't remember it. And, you know, we're like, oh, God, I'm sure I understood that. And I, th- I think that, you know, we should build in this idea that it takes commitment. It, it's challenging. And if you think you've picked something up really easily, you probably haven't understood it very well at least at first yeah hard but rewarding that's learning love it so <laughs> what if what advice would you give to your first year teacher self now that you know all this great stuff from algae bill or just more more generally um so i like maybe a lot of teachers was was taught in my first year with the belief that you should be able to step out of the classroom, look back into the classroom and everybody's just doing the work by themselves and you should say as little as possible. And it's become a bit of a cliche for uh, for teachers to say this now, but I had this idea that that as a teacher, you were supposed to not do very much with, with students. Um, and this discovery learning kind of paradigm was was the right way to teach. And that made so much sense in my head at the time because actually what we've said about cognitive work and like things being challenging cognitively, what could be more challenging than discovery learning, <laughs> you know, discovering what, how to figure out the diameter of a circle, you know, how, I, I don't, you know, it's, it, that's really hard. And you think, you know, you really are challenging students when you're doing that. So it fit with a lot of things that I thought. Um, so I guess like, I wish that my first year self had understood the power that I could have in the classroom to really um, support students to to learn 
more efficiently, um, especially when they were very much at that novice stage and to really understand my, my role within the classroom. And I think Ajibel is very clear on that at, at the beginning of, of his books. Um, I also wish I had kind of understood what Azubel says about, um, you know, the teacher can say what they want, but actually the learning happens in the minds of the students and that I'd used a lot more kind of tasks like the self-explanation to really embed those ideas. And I think the third thing I wish is that I'd gone off on less tangents <laughs> in my English lessons um, and tried to fo- like think carefully about the focus of my lessons. Um, I was quite activity-led um, rather than like concept-led. Um, and I'm really bought into this idea of, of concepts now and, and orientating your teaching around those concepts. So I think that was those are the kind of three things I might say to my my first year self whether I would have the capacity to take them on board in my first year I don't know but um but yeah yeah great advice book recommendations oh yes yeah I had to write some of these down hang on because I wanted to get them right um so um Christian Moore Anderson writes a book called Biology Made Real, and it's not just for biology teachers, and it's about meaningful learning in biology. And he has read loads and loads and loads to write this book. Um, I found it really useful and very, like, concrete. Um, So I would definitely recommend that. Um, I also um, recently really enjoyed um, Peps McRae's new book, Developing Expert Teaching, where he like manages to take all the like research on expertise and condense it down in a typical Peps McRae kind of way um, into a very condensed book, which is, is brilliant. Um, I also um, had the kind of pleasure of, of reading in advance um, Emma Turner's book, Initium, which is about cognitive science and research-informed primary practice um, for primary teachers. And I found it really interesting. And she's explained things in really kind of um, accessible ways. Um, so I really enjoyed that one. And I wanted to um, sneak in a fourth uh, book, um, which I really enjoyed. So I um, did an MA in, in um, neuroscience, educational neuroscience. And recently, Cathy uh, Rogers and Michael Thomas have put out a really nice accessible reasonably short book called educational neuroscience the basics and it's like aimed at I think it's aimed at everyone but teachers like especially would enjoy it so I would um, definitely recommend um, reading that if you want to kind of get stuck into a bit of um, the sort of basics of of neuroscience thanks so much for them Sarah I've only read one of those four books so I've got lots more to to explore (laughs) What are you currently most excited about? In life or <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that was uh, was aimed at that question. Um in in work wise, um well I'm actually on maternity leave at the moment. So um I'm like blogging and and doing some bits where I can. And what I'm excited about is um kind of 
basically I just go down rabbit holes in my thinking. If I read something interesting, I'll just go down a bit of a rabbit hole. And I mentioned earlier that I'm really interested in this idea of familiarity and how it like tricks us into basically thinking that we we know something. And I I have just this hunch, mainly because Daniel Willingham tends to be right about what he talks about. But also I just have this hunch from from myself that familiarity is a real barrier to me learning things properly. Um, and I kind of lazily trick myself into thinking I know things that I don't know. So I'm wanting to do a bit more exploration of exploration, sorry, of that of that kind of concept and idea um, in neuroscience, kind of neuroscience of it, and um, and and look at sort of what we might do to sort of stop that in uh, kind of tricking us into thinking we've learned stuff. So I'm excited about that and. In life, I'm excited um, about going on a trip next week. First trip with my newborn baby um, and um, Ollie. And you were so helpful to me when I was uh, at my wits end with his sleep. So I'm hoping that I can take him successfully away for the weekend and not ruin his sleeping habits and therefore ruin my ability to get a good night's sleep. So um, so I'm excited to see how that goes. Uh, Slash a little bit scared. Fingers crossed for you, Sarah. And I'm sure it sounds like you've got Harry on a really good routine now, so I'm I'm sure it'll go well. Any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Yeah, I mean, if if they're interested in in this, um, obviously we've covered a lot during this podcast. There's also you can kind of Google Ajibel and read about him, or hopefully my book is a good um, introduction to that. Um, but I think what the biggest sort of takeaway is like, is what you've already said, Ollie, about meaningful learning and about how meaningful learning has these multitude of potential benefits. Creating those bodies of knowledge that stick around because they're like anchored. Um, also potentially supporting with with motivation through like you know being able to recall those concepts and build upon them and feel and see that success um so i'd want them to take away this idea of like how can we make learning meaningful like, what am i already doing because teachers will already be doing loads of this stuff and then what do i need to kind of consciously and deliberately kind of cultivate in my teaching to help students make learning more more meaningful that's great. And, I mean, this conversation has got me thinking about so much. So I will say, Sarah Cottingham, thank you so much for your time. I usually say today, but it's actually I'm not sure if listeners have noticed, but um, this has been two conversations mushed together with a, a, a one-month gap in between because, you know, <laughs> we've both had both got babies and blah, blah, blah. It's really hard to find a time. But it, it's been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. We've been talking about the most fundamental thing at the heart of teaching, which is, you know, what is the process of learning and like how can we make that happen? And I think that I anticipate that for many le- many listeners, this will be quite an impactful episode because it does really get to the heart of what we're trying to do every time we step into the classroom. It's been really powerful for me. I mean, I do like a lot of the geeky kind of terminology um, that you introduced us to through Alzubel. Um, and that's because I think it does describe a lot of um, a lot of what we're trying to do. And so I will be using words like subsumers in future. And, and, and I'd say that is one that's kind of stuck around for you as well. You, you know, when we talk about advanced organizers, you're like, you need to activate the subsumers. I think I think it's a really helpful term and one that I'll be using in future. Um, and it was really nice to kind of be prompted to reflect again on some of the things that have potentially gone well in my classrooms in the past, like kind of that Socratic, Socratic 
checking for uh, meaning that I've done with students and to think more about how can I make more space for that. And also in the teacher education that I'm um, engaging in more and more, how can I think about for teachers, what are the kind of anchoring subsumers is what I'm going to call them um, that I want to sit above and that I want to kind of tie everything in with. Um, So Sarah, thank you so much for your time today and a month ago. Um, I wish we had more time, <laughs> but you know we've only had we've only had two hours each time um, to, to talk, and we've we've run out of time. But there, you know, there were another fifty questions or so that I wanted to ask you. You see, but yeah, thanks for thanks thanks for the work you've done in in bringing Algie Bill's uh, ideas from you know the sixties, I think, as far back as sixties um, and eighties, in into the light of the of the current century. And I look forward to hearing what you learn about familiarity and the dangers thereof and and much more in future as well thank you so much for having me i've been a as i said at the beginning huge fan of your podcast ollie for a really long time so it's a a bit of a bit of a life goal to have been on it so thank you very much hey all it's ollie again one more thing just before you take off and that is ed threads Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? My weekly free newsletter is super short, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary of teaching and learning that you get free access to. I often link to recent papers that have come out, tweets and Twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles, and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from the show, and that I've discovered from scouring the internet. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to, and I only pass on the very best ones to you. So, if that sounds fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick-to-read format, just go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to get EdThreads. Stop what you're doing and sign up right now before you forget. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.